The Battle of Waterloo of 1815 was one of the most famous turning points in world history. So didn't you ever wonder what happened after Napoleon was carted away to St. Helena? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I, for rigged elections and shadowy conspiracies, for murder at the opera and terror in the streets, and so, so many revolutions. The Siecle is spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, and can be found wherever you get podcasts. You can also visit thesiecle.com, where I post full annotated transcripts of every episode with sources, pictures, and maps. Now, back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Philip VI. Bonjour and bienvenue to Battle Royale, where we are passing judgment on all the kings and emperors of France, from Clovis to Napoleon III. Who will be selected as the creme de la creme, and who will be sent to the guillotine? Je m'appelle Ben Clark. And I'm Eliza Summers. Okay, you were so energetic in that intro, I felt I had to be more energetic. I'm just going, I'm trying to go into the, this this new line of kings with some energy that they may or may not deserve. Um, <laughs> we'll see. Yes. Um, Forgot who's starting a new line. Starting a new line, exactly. Well, we haven't done a king in a while. Um, I know. It's been a hot minute. It's a hot, been a hot minute, and there's a reason for that. I thought we should take a little gap between the House of Capet and the House of Valois. Give me time to go to Korea. Yep, Eliza went to Korea. South the Korea. Cor- <laughs> yep. To clarify. A lot has happened. Uh, the coronation yeah. of King Charles III has happened. Yeah, I know. Oh, my God. Wasn't Anne and also Kate stunning? Oh, my God. Anne is such a boss queen. I love her. So I didn't see Anne, but she, she was in, like, uniform, wasn't she? Yeah, she was, like, badass boss lady. She's, she's my favorite. I only watched bits and pieces of it. I, like, tuned in and out because most of it was just, like, you know, an Anglican service, which I find rather boring. Oh, yeah, but I did <laughs> bits and pieces. I just more watched but I was the there for the I was there for the actual crowning itself. I didn't crowning. see any of the, yeah, pres- yeah, yeah. the, the procession because I slept in that day. Uh, so but you, I got up uh, at 11 and I, uh, and yeah. Well, me, I was just admiring, I mean, I, like, the women. Apparently f- 54% of the people in the UK just tuned in for bits and pieces. Yeah, no surprise. Yeah. Well, it's a long process. It is. Um, but it's amazing we got to see a coronation. Interesting experience. Yeah, well, we, it might not be that long till we see the next one. <laughs> I know, true, true. Um, so that happened. Eurovision happened last night, time of recording. Yes. Um, yes. So that's fun. I know. I can reveal to the listeners my family got a... New dog. Well, it's more my brother's dog, my little brother, because he's having a hard year. And they've yes. ne- and he chose the name Nero. I was arguing for Argo, but you know, here we are. But it's an it's a, it's a it's an emperor's name. I know, Fitting. crazy emperor. 
Yeah. Yeah, not the best emperor. <laughs> I know, not the best one, but the reason why my little brother chose it is because Nero means like black in Italian. In Italian, yeah, yeah. So like he Cafe Nero. Yeah. There's a there's a cafe called, I know, the chain chain. called Cafe Nero in the UK. Yeah. Uh, it which just means black coffee, I guess, in, in yeah. Italian. Trend. Yeah, so I was like, okay, I guess we can have that name. But it's a it's a cute little pup. It's growing very big quickly. Yeah, and it's another Portuguese water dog, isn't it? Yes, another Portuguese water dog. Brilliant dogs. Uh, So now we're going to get into our new dynasty, the House of Valois, which I think we've been looking forward to, listeners have been looking forward to for a long time. We're going to get into the start of the Hundred Years' War, which is exciting. But Philip VI is not one of the more well-known kings of France, despite being the first king in this great dynasty yes so we're going to we're going to start his life from the very very beginning back before he even knew he would become king because there's a bit of life to cover he's a bub he's kind of like Hugh cafe in that he uh doesn't become king until sprouted later in life not later in life but you know sort of uh i guess i guess his his 30s which is middle age for then um yeah yeah. well so old (laughs) <laughs> but first we have to talk about the sources because we've got some amazing juicy fresh new yes. sources because we're now in a period where there is an abundance of more accessible contemporary chroniclers so there's like more english translations of them available yeah makes my research easier um mm-hmm. so our three main chroniclers they're all called jean um <laughs> So, th- so first of all, there's Jean Foissart, which is probably the one that most yeah. people would have heard of. Uh, he is a court chronicler from the county of Hainaut, um, up in modern-day Belgium, which finds itself kind of torn between both sides of the Hundred Years' War. Yeah. And as such, Foissart is something of a neutral observer, sort of seeing the merits of both sides. Mm. So he's, 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 he's quite a reliable observer. That's and uh, he was he was also a writer of mm-hmm. Arthurian romances, and it shows Ooh. in his chronicle. It's definitely the most expressive. Oh my god! It's like his little fanfic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So next, Jean, we have Jean Lebel from Liège, which is also in modern mm-hmm. day Belgium. Just be- Belgium producing all of these great writers. writers. Um, Good on them. So Lebel predates Foissart, so he's a bit earlier. Um, Mm -hmm. and he's more of an eyewitness to a lot of the events that we'll see in this episode. Uh, though his chronicle is a lot shorter and it's not as sort of comprehensive. So so it covers more of a, no, it's, it's kind of the opposite. It covers more of a narrow focus because it's more just the stuff he knows Uh, rather than, rather than a big narrative, which is like Fossa is doing like a big epic narrative. Whereas LaBelle is just like, this is what happened in this year. Yeah. Oh, it's nice to have that too. Yeah, it is nice to have that. And our last Jean, we've got Jean de Venette, uh, who is a monk from, not Belgium this time, he's from near Paris. Um, So near Belgium? (laughs) Well, I guess it's all kind of near each other. (laughs) But um, he he comes from a village called Venette, which is outside Paris. Um, And he's sometimes been dubbed uh, the People's Chronicler because he's the only one of these who actually considers himself French. And he focuses mainly oh. on what the people of France were experiencing oh. during the carnage of the Hundred Years' War and the Black Death. So yeah, we've got Fossa, we've got Labelle, and we've got Vinette, and they're all called so John. The three Johns. The three, three Johns. Johns. So these are the primary sources I'm working off, along with a huge stack of historians whose works sit beside me in a big pile. 
and nice. who know this period infinitely better than I could ever hope to know it. So, you know, got a lot of different sources. Their knowledge. Gonna borrow lots of knowledge. So before we get into Philip VI, we have to talk about his parents. Yeah. Because this is the first time since Hugh Cathay that we're covering a king whose parents weren't the king and queen of France. So both his parents were, they were Capetians, both of them. But not um, the main. From different branches. Yeah, not from the main branch. So let's start with his mother. Mm -hmm. Because ladies first and uh, because she dies first. Um, so, So his mother's name is Margaret of Anjou. Not the Margaret of Anjou. Yeah, not that one. A, a Margaret of Anjou. A Margaret. I'm sure there's many. She's actually Margaret Countess of Anjou. Ooh, nice. Yeah. So she belonged to the Capetian house of Anjou, who descend from Charles of Anjou, uh, Margaret's grandfather. And uh, Charles was one of Louis IX's younger brothers who went on his dumb uh, crusades with him. If uh, you remember that. And he ended up founding the spin-off kingdom in Sicily which over time oh, has one. started to be called the Kingdom of Naples because Naples yeah. is capital and because Sicily ends up getting lost, uh, it gets conquered by <laughs> the Spanish Kingdom of Aragon, who also claim yeah. to be the, the kings of Sicily. They reckon they have a better claim to Charles of Anjou because they have an actual blood claim, whereas Charles of Anjou just got made King of Naples by the Pope. So Charles of Anjou, Margaret's grandfather, died back in 1285 and was succeeded mm-hmm. by her father, Charles II, um, as mm-hmm. not just King of Naples, but also Count of Provence, Count of Fourcalquier, Count of Anjou, Count of Maine, mm. and Prince of Achaea, which is a territory Ooh. in uh, Greece that the French Crusaders uh, stole from the Byzantines uh, back okay. when their empire was kind of crumbling a bit. Although it's kind of, it, it's resurged a bit. Yeah, a little bit of a revival. A little bit of a revival before its final downfall about 100 years from where we are. It's like, um, oh my God, it's like, a, you know, like taking like a one last struggling breath before you die. Yeah. Oh, speaking of which, um, the Totalis Rankium podcast uh, are going to be featuring our trailer soon. So that's Woo! exciting. So we might get some new listeners. So if you're new and you came from Totalis Rankium, welcome. Hello. Um, condolences for the destruction of your empire. <laughs> and also sorry for the part that the french played in that sorry again uh charles ii of naples who's so margaret's Mm -hmm. dad his reign was a bit of a disaster from the very start because when he became king he was a prisoner of war in aragon um he was also a bit of a jerk uh he really ramped up persecution against muslims and jews in his territories um and he was kind of just a sort of tool for the king of france to use and drop when he saw fit uh, the King of France now being Philip IV, the cursed slapper. Um, <laughs> by the way, in the course of giving Philip the Fair a new epithet, we kind of forgot that he already had a badass epithet, which is the Iron King. Yeah, but I like Pope Slapper best. Cursed Slapper is more descriptive, I guess. But he's also the Iron King. He's he's the best king that we've had in recent times. In my heart, he'll always be Pope Slapper. He's the last one we've had who, who got through the tournament. So anyway, Charles II of Naples is, uh, as part of keeping France on his side, and also because his territories are just way too scattered for him to properly administrate, decides to marry his eldest daughter, Margaret, to the Iron King's brother, Charles of Valois. Uh, As a dowry, he gives away uh, his French counties of Anjou and Maine. So this is pretty special for Margaret, because she has several brothers, and yet she manages to inherit a territory with wealth and influence to rival theirs. Yeah, Dan, they were probably not happy. They were salty as, I bet. Yeah. 
So do you remember around where Anjou is? Um, I think so. But refresh my memory in case I've got it completely wrong and I think you've So it's else. in the it's in the Loire Valley. Okay, um, yeah. So it's right. west of Paris, yeah. And it's one of the most prosperous regions of France. And mm-hmm. uh, Maine is uh, is like the hills just north of that, which separate it from yeah. Brittany and Normandy. Nice. So we're kind of looking at northwestern France here. Hmm. So Margaret, she's sent to France at the age of 12 and marries the 20-year-old Charles of Valois. Um, hmm. But thankfully, she doesn't have her first child, Isabella, until she's about 20 herself. So Oh, yay. Yeah. Um, so the couple managed to have two sons and four daughters before 1299, when Margaret sadly dies alongside her recently Aww. born youngest daughter, Catherine. Aww. So Margaret was 27 when she died. Um, oh, so young. Wow, she really had lots of kids though, in seven years. Yeah, she, she, was, she got down to business. Pumping them out. So, so her five remaining children, uh, who are both sons and daughters, uh, will all end up having important roles to play in the Hundred Years' War, but I won't mention Ooh. them till they come up in the narrative because the Valois kids have the most generic names. Um, <laughs> so we've got I- Isabella, Philip, Joan, Margaret Jr. and Charles Jr. Ah, um, uh, yeah. And then Charles of Valois ends up having more wives and giving his children more bubs. similar, if Repeated. not the same names. Because <laughs> it's like, why bother learning a new name? We're going to end up with two two Jones who are both sisters of Philip VI. Uh, it's going to be... Oh my gosh. Okay, get ready for too many Jones in this episode. There are just too many Jones at this point. Isn't there always too many Jones, I feel? There's too many Jones. Or, or, or Jeanne, I suppose, which is the French pronunciation, but I'm going to keep saying Joan. I like Joan. For now, let's move on to Charles of Valois, who we've seen pop up many, many times throughout the latest slew mm-hmm. of episodes. I even thought of giving him his own episode, but honestly, it would be... It would be rehashing so much of the same territory that we've already covered. So I was like, no. Yeah. Um, I feel like he'd end up in the nosebleed section as well. Um, <laughs> but anyway, let's get into it. So Charles of Valois uh, was born the third son of King Philip III, who was called mm-hmm. Philip the Bold, although I think Philip the Foolish might have been a better epithet. Mm. Uh, he's the one who, who, like Louis the Ninth, went on to crusade and die, but he'd, he'd yeah. done a lot less than Louis the Ninth. Um, so as a young man, uh, Charles of Valois was given the appanage of Valois, of course, mm-hmm. which uh, lies just northeast of Paris. So it's in the opposite direction to Anjou. Yeah. It's kind of uh, towards Belgium, sort of a vermandois kind mm. of area. And nice. Valois' eldest brother, Louis, uh, mm-hmm. when they were teenagers, uh, died. Mm. So from then on, Valois had to be loyal to his next oldest brother, Philip IV. Um, though, as we noted in Philip's episode, the two had completely opposite personalities, these two brothers. While the Iron King always used his brain, Valois preferred to follow his heart, and his heart led him to pursue numerous adventures outside of France that the king often tried to stay out of. So in particular, he was very, he was very fond of the idea of crusading, um, and of supporting the Pope as well, which um, Philip IV was was less keen on supporting Popes, uh, if you'll recall. So Valois' second marriage after Margaret's death was mm-hmm. to Catherine of Courtney from the Courtney branch of the Capetian family, which is a much older branch. Um, mm-hmm. 
So her father, Philip of Courtney, was the last Latin emperor of Constantinople. Oh, So these are the crusaders that replaced the Byzantine emperors for a hot minute in in Constantinople. So he'd been defeated by the resurgent Byzantine empire. So through his wife, Valois claimed to be the rightful emperor of Constantinople. In Istanbul, not Constantinople. Yes, yes. So catchy. Also, at several points in his career... Valois claimed to be king of Aragon and king of Jerusalem and also tried to get himself elected Holy Roman Emperor. May as well. Yeah, so he's clearly a man of ambition. He's the second son. He he, he wants yeah. himself a kingdom, but he unlike Charles of Anjou before him, he didn't manage to get one. Um, and uh, to his credit, Valois did quite well gaining prestige in France uh, and once he realized his brother wasn't taking him seriously enough, he started becoming a, a sort of mentor figure to Philip IV's three sons, who each in turn mm-hmm. ended up becoming kings and making Valois very, very powerful at the French court. Mm-hmm. Um, so in addition, during his brother's reign, Valois was a big supporter of Pope Boniface VIII, um, trying to gain more papal authority in Italy. So he like called uh, Valois down to help him fight people. Uh, and these, this, these are the wars that Dante gets caught up in and uh, oh, ends up yeah. getting Dante uh, uh, in, in exile. Bingo. Yeah, At one point, Valois actually besieges Florence uh, when Dante is living oh. there. Yeah, um, He got put in the bad books, I'm guessing. He, uh, yeah, I think he, he ends up in purgatory in, in Dante's um, Inferno. Uh, or Dante's Purgatorio, I, see, I should say. But yeah, so so basically Valois is help, trying to help the Pope gain more authority in Italy. And obviously mm-hmm. this makes things awkward when Philip ends up going against Boniface and getting him slapped to death. Um, <laughs> more on that in Philip IV's episode. Also making things a bit awkward was that Valois was a diehard supporter of the Templars. Oh. And we know what Philip does to the Templars. Um curse, curse, curse. Yeah, he persecutes and eventually burns their leaders at the stake to get all their money, basically. And uh, Valois was not best pleased. He was on the Templar side, as far as the curse goes. So the te- so the Templars did not curse him or his line. Yeah, yeah, because he yeah. was actually <laughs> was advocating for them. So, which turns out will be very useful. So the the curse of the Templars will be done by by um, in this in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. So say fun. say goodbye to the fun sound effect of the curse of the Templars. Yeah. Um this will probably be the last episode we use it. But Philip the 4th died in 1314 and suddenly Valois became the most powerful lord in France as he held the most sway over the successor Louis the 10th. Obviously we know what happens next. So Louis the 10th and his brothers mm-hmm. Philip the 5th and Charles the 4th all reign and die in succession, along with poor baby John the First. Mm. And in the process, all of their potential female heirs were passed over for the French crown, which end up making Valois the immediate heir to his final nephew, Charles the Fourth. But Valois just narrowly misses out on becoming king himself. He dies at the age of 55, just two years before Charles the Fourth oh. dies. Yeah. But he was salty in heaven yeah. or hell. With all that background out of the way, we finally get to the subject of today's episode, Philip of Valois, the eldest son of Charles of Valois, named after his brother, of course, which is nice. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, son of Margaret of Anjou. Um, 
So Margaret was a countess, of course, and Philip actually inherited his mother's counties Mm. around the age of six when she died. Mm. Although they were managed for Valois at first for quite a while. Then, of course, he became Count of Valois and King of France in quick succession in his mid-30s later on. So we don't know Philip's exact birth date, but it was around the year 1293, um, Mm -hmm. making him pretty much the same age as his first cousins. So Louis X. Philip V, Charles IV. He was mm. pretty much the same age as them, growing up at the French court with them, slash yeah. on his parents' various country estates. <laughs> yes. Um, so we honestly don't know too much about the first 30 years of Philip's life. Mm. Um, he very much lived in the shadow of his father, um, mm. Abawa. He did lead troops and administrate his own territories, but it was always under the oversight of his father. So he never, like, personally actually led an army. Mm. He was always as yeah. a lieutenant to his father. Uh, um, and we get the feeling that between Philip and his little brother, uh, Charles Count of Alençon, that it was Alençon who was the favourite. Oh. Uh, yeah. Because um, upon his death, Valois bequeathed his famous sword to Alençon rather than Philip. Ooh. So he clearly at least recognized Alençon as the better warrior. Mm. Mm. So being a subordinate figure meant that Philip VI was not terribly prepared for the whole uh, ruling France thing um, <laughs> to suddenly be thrust upon him um, after a life spent as a provincial lord. Um, and indeed, many of his peers had issues with a mere noble suddenly being elevated to king, especially the other Capetian princes who were essentially the same rank as him. But sexism won, I guess. They wanted to stick to the male line. Um, They wanted Mm. a Capetian to always be the king of France. So every king of France we talk about from now on, Eliza, will be from a branch of the Capetian dynasty. Bonapartes don't count because they're not kings, they're emperors. Um, (laughs) So our last king, Charles IV, died on the Mm. 1st of February... 1328. Okay. And while Philip of Valois was declared regent of France a week later, he actually had to wait yeah. two months before being declared king. Because if you'll remember, they weren't sure if Charles IV's heavily pregnant widow might be give birth to a yeah. son, which had obviously happened before. Yeah. But this this wife who who's called Joan, um, mm. <laughs> but we won't get into her. Um, she gave birth to a daughter on April Fool's Day. Mm. Um, and that was the day that Philip of Valois, later also dubbed Philip the Fortunate, uh, became the mm. unlikely king of France. Mm. So his ascent to the throne was ratified by a council of lords and clergy in Paris, and he was crowned by the Archbishop of Rheims in the Cathedral of Rheims, mm. as is the tradition. So yes. he's officially, you know, everything's mm-hmm. official. All the boxes are ticked. Yes. Meanwhile, his cousin Joan II of Navarre becomes Queen of Navarre. Mm-hmm. See last episode for how he, mm-hmm. the crowns of France and Navarre have their an- amicable separation. <laughs> Joan's uncle, so Joan II of Navarre's uncle, the Duke of Burgundy, decided to not kick up a fuss about her getting passed over as oh. he had in the past because he, w- he just so happened to be Philip of Valois' brother-in-law. Oh. So he actually had more power now than he would have if his niece had been the queen. Yeah. So the new queen of France is um, is Philip VI's wife, um, mm-hmm. who 
Guess what her name is? Joan. Her name is Joan. This is Joan of Burgundy, otherwise known as Joan the Lame, which is uh, a a rather cruel nickname. Um, She had a very frail body and was chronically ill a lot. Um, Why didn't they just call her Joan the Frail? Because lame, I guess, you know, it was (laughs) an acceptable thing to call someone back then. But uh, don't let her her name deceive you because she is a force to be reckoned with. Good. So Joan, I'm going to call her Joan the Lame, unfortunately, because that's, you know, the the most identifiable name for her. But we're going to reclaim it. (laughs) We're going to reclaim the term lame. So Joan the Lame uh, would have grown up in the shadow of her elder sister, Margaret of Burgundy, who, if you recall, mm-hmm. was the wife of Louis X, the mother yeah. of Joan II yeah. of Navarre, because yep. this family tree is very twisted up. And Margaret of Burgundy is, of course, the ringleader in the Tour de Nel affair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Margaret ended up getting accused of adultery and locked away in Chateau Gaillard, where she mysteriously died. Um, dun, dun, dun. either of illness or if she was strang- strangled. But Joan would not follow in her sister's uh, footsteps, uh, aside from, you know, becoming Queen of France. Um, yeah. So unlike Margaret, who was in prison for her entire time as queen, Joan was very strong. She and Philip got along quite well. Um, yeah, that's good. She, despite her outward frailness, she has a fearsome inner strength prompting one chronicler to say she was, quote, like a king and caused the destruction of those who opposed her will. Ooh, damn. So she's, like yeah. She might be weak uh, of body, but strong of mind. Yeah. So frustratingly, I couldn't find too much about what she actually did. Like, did her, like more that. specific examples of, of, of her activities. Um, but she was she was very um, you know she was very domineering and she was also a great intellectual. She she started a huge collection of books, which we'll see the successes of Philip VI will carry on a, a huge tradition in the oh, Valois nice. of collecting manuscripts and um, that sort of thing. That's cool. So for all the deficiencies that we'll find in Philip's character, remember that he had a strong woman beside him. Yes. Um, the whole time. Although, s- sadly, her physical weakness meant that very few of their numerous children ended up surviving to adulthood. Aww. So, yeah, also keep in mind that they're having children and the children are constantly dying, um, which will add a bit of stress. So, Philip VI gains the French throne, uh, at first with almost no fuss, but the first sign of trouble comes with a delegation from none other than... Isabella the She-Wolf. Hee-hee. <laughs> the last surviving child of Philip VI's mm. uncle, Philip IV. At this point, Isabella is still the regent in England for her son Edward III, who's like a tween. Yep. Um, <laughs> and she has very recently deposed her own husband, Edward II, uh, um, yeah. who also mysteriously dies in prison. Um, it seems to happen to a lot of people <laughs> this time. Um, Around her. Yeah. And she now rules England as regent alongside the man who is widely accepted to have been her lover, Roger Mortimer. Mm. So now, by modern standards, we would, of course, consider Isabella's niece, Joan II of Navarre, to be the rightful heir, because she's the daughter of the eldest son. And Isabella is the youngest daughter of Philip IV. So in the line of succession, she should be, like, behind all of her nieces. Um, Which, there there are six nieces at this point. Um, But... 
Isabella has something that her nieces don't have, and that's sons. Uh So in England, while they still have issues with women succeeding to the throne, right up to the Tudor period, they have no problem with the concept that the throne can pass through a woman to a male heir. So using English logic, rather than the Salic law that Philip of Valois is trying to use, Isabella starts to uh, subtly insinuate that the young Edward, her son, is the rightful king of France. Um, Bit far-fetched. Well, it's not too far-fetched if you if you sort of look at how England has done its succession. And yeah, yeah, but I mean, like, to follow, like, she's not in, like, France is not England, they're not following that law, so it's a bit for to argue to try to use that law. But at the same time, it's also a bit far-fetched for Philip to use the Salic law, which until now has not really been used. Um, the the only reason that the, the throne is passed to a male every time is because there's been an available son. Um, yeah. And in fact, there is actually an example of the throne uh, passing through a woman earlier. Uh, yeah. At one point, if you remember, you will not remember this king, but Rudolph. <laughs> oh, yeah, I do. Was king of France because he was married to the last king of France's daughter. So he wasn't yeah. even a blood relative at all. I he know, just, but Isabella isn't even like, because she's so far down in this line, so. Yeah, well, I mean, by modern standards, we would consider her, like, way down in the line of, so, like, yeah, she's, she's like the, she's like the, the, the Princess Anne of the family, like, you know. Yeah. Um, Anne's never going to get the throne, but. I wish it, she would. It makes sense if you think of their logic of, like, the, the king has to be a, a man. Yeah. But it's a question of, does it go to the closest male relative or does it go to the one directly in the male line? Basically. I know, but it's, for me, I guess it's more like, oh, there's still Joan, the second. Yeah. <laughs> Although, like, also bear in mind that Joan... ahead of yourself, Isabella. Also bear in mind that Joan is 16 years old at this point, so she's still quite young as well. Although Edward is younger. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was about to say. <laughs> Edward's younger, but he's a man, you know, and he's not, you know, having babies. He's not dying in childbirth. Instead, trying to die in battle. But in terms yeah. of in terms of whether Isabella's claim is better or whether, uh, or slash Edward's claim is better, whether Philip's claim is better, either James way, is better. <laughs> you know, either way, it's kind of like, you know, Missing the forest Whatever. for the trees in, in, in modern times. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, well, I suppose know. as well, it's like, he's not even in France, so it's more convenient she's the one who grew up in France. Yeah. But we also have the benefit of hindsight of, like, having many examples of, of successful women rulers, whereas yeah, neither yeah, France yeah. nor England at this point has that. Yeah. Yeah. So we know how unless unless you count um either fled of mercia for that <laughs> way back um or, or boudica or um you know yeah. Yeah. anyway so so, so isabella uh you know lays out philip uh lays out edward's claim with her delegation to france mm-hmm. which is led by the bishops of coventry and worcester so she doesn't go herself she's busy ruling england but these bishops arrive in Paris a couple of weeks before Philip's coronation. Um, but by the time they get there, the ship has already kind of sailed, like Philip's <laughs> already king. And yeah. 
in any case, the French have kind of soured on Isabella. Um, yeah. So she used to be quite a popular princess, but yeah. But now, you know, rumors of her scandalous conduct with Mortimer. You know, she made a bit of How an exhibition of her herself. Husband. When she was last in France, she'd been a bit of an exhibition of herself, oh. with, like cavorting around with Mortimer and raising oh, an army of vagabonds to depose her husband. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a sour note. Also, if you remember, she wore mourning for her husband who was still alive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was so good, though. We love is We are a pro Isabella podcast, you know, despite. Oh, her- yeah, yeah. We are pro. Despite her disregard of 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 Joan um, of Navarre's claim, um, yeah. but uh, but you know the the French have kind of taken against Isabella. She's now developed yeah. a, a, re- a reputation as a rather uh, tyrannical Scandalous. queen in England. Yeah, um, so the lords of France yeah, are like absolutely fearful. not because because you know making Edward the the king of France would not only be you know inviting a foreign ruler, but it would also mean that. Isabella becomes essentially the region of France. They don't think they want yeah. that. Um, yeah. So Seeing they essentially behavior. will basically be Roger who be as well. Yeah. Power, so. And Roger as well. Yeah. Roger's also a bit of a scary figure. Um, he's this upstart. Yeah, so who's, like, you know, not, they don't like the upstarts. You know. So the lords of France essentially laugh the English delegation out of town. And the bishops return to Isabella complaining of, quote, ugly threats having been made against them in Paris. Um, So obviously, I've made it no secret that the Hundred Years' War is going to start in this episode. So we Mm. will have to focus a bit more on England than we do. Oh my God, no, 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 no. It starts because the start was because the bishops went and complained. They're like, they were mean to us. They chased us out of town. Honestly, like, there's. There's so much like dumb petty back and forth stuff that I that there's so much of it that I don't have time to get into. But just imagine yeah. a lot of that happening in the background. Oh. <laughs> um, just helping just to escalate bishops, things. like complaining. Yeah, bishops, you know, is, bishops, knights, yeah, all, all these, all these, you it's know, like, sensitive, sensitive. They poke their tongue out at me. Yeah, Where? sensitive snowflake dudes um so so i've tried as much as possible to keep my hundred years war bishops you know narrowly focused on the french perspective um but at the same time it's important for us to know our enemy so let's get into edward the third at first edward is too busy struggling to gain control over england to worry about france but as he grows into the extremely formidable king that he is and as philip starts to really piss him off he starts to push his French claim further and further. So things initially start off more kind of awkward than hostile. Um, So on the 6th of June, 1329, about a year after the coronation in France, Edward arrives at Amiens Cathedral to give homage to Philip. Because of course, as I've so often reiterated, Edward is not just the King of England, but also the Duke of uh, what's now starting to be called Guienne, which is mm. essentially like the bits of Gascony and Aquitaine that England still controls, way down at the bottom left-hand mm. corner of France. So he has to let the King of France know that like those lands in southwestern France are like still in France, despite being personally owned by the King of England. Mm-hmm. The King of England rules them, but they're not England, basically. <laughs> yeah. It'd be like if um, Joe Biden owned a farm in Australia. Like That doesn't make that farm America, just because Joe Biden yeah. owns it. 
Yeah. Feels like some Americans disagree, though. But, you know, Joe would, Joe would still have to pay taxes to the Australian government for that farm, you know? You wouldn't. Or they'd be like, Paul Hogan just never comes to Australia because he has to pay all the taxes. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> Maybe a bad example, but <laughs> so this I know. so this homage ceremony in in Amiens is a bit weird. Um, so Edward's oath to Philip is deliberately vague and contentious. Um, not only did Edward resent Philip having taken the French throne, but he was also arguing that he should be given back the lands in Guienne, which had been conquered by Philip's dad, Charles of Valois, during the War of Saint Sardes, which was the last war that the two countries fought. Yeah. So during the ceremony, Edward knelt before Philip, recognizing him as the lord, his landlord in Guienne, but did not allow Philip to clasp his hands, which would have signified mm-hmm. Philip being his sovereign. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a very specific semantic difference, yeah. but it is... Edward trying to worm his way out of explicit homage. Yeah. Cheeky, cheeky. But outside of this weird moment, the kings actually got along perfectly well. Um, (laughs) uh, They'd previously become acquainted during Richard's past visit to France when he was the Prince of Wales, um, Mm. back when Isabella was plotting. Um, But this was all kind of a, a friendly facade. Philip still thought that the homage wasn't enough, so he's going to pursue yeah. Edward for, to get to give a, a, a better homage Proper next one. time. But Edward is still not in a strong enough position to challenge France. First, he has to overcome his own regent, Mortimer, who he's getting extremely yeah. fed up with now that he's sort of in his later teens. I'm sure he felt the way many teenage boys feel about their mother's overly controlling boyfriend. Um, so... Yeah. In 1330, with the help of his uncle, the Earl of Kent, Edward arrested Watermer in a... I called him Watermer. Edward arrested Mortimer in a coup. We love a good coup. Yes, we do. And then had him unceremoniously executed, um, bringing an abrupt end to the regency of both him and Queen Isabella. So Isabella is sort of forced to retire. She still kind of plays a role at the English court, but she is no longer the regent. Uh, Edward yeah, no is now fully in, in, in control of the reins of power. Meanwhile, things down in Guienne have been escalating. Mm. So Philip sends his brother Alençon, the guy with the sword, mm-hmm. down the with good an army. Warrior. The good one. Uh, with the threat that if Edward refuses to swear a proper homage, oh. his lands in France will be forfeit. Fair enough. So Alençon gets as far as Bordeaux, which is the capital of yeah. English Guienne. Uh, but by getting rid of Mortimer and assuming his full powers of king of, uh, as king oh. of England, um, Edward is he able focus to focus all on France. Yeah, well, no, he he actually um, Mortimer was was being quite reckless with the relationship with oh. France, whereas Edward is able to steady the ship a bit. He makes oh, the French back cautious. down by agreeing to swear the homage. Oh. So the following year, he confirms his homage at a second meeting with Philip at Pont Saint-Maxence. Is he less vague this time? (laughs) He's less vague this time. Uh, And there's also uh, talk of the cousins launching launching a joint crusade into Muslim Spain. Oh, no. Um, (laughs) Which you'll be pleased to know it will not go ahead. Um, Yeah, I (laughs) know. But Isabella 
has already, you know, planted that idea in Edward that he ought yeah. to be king of France. So that's yeah. going to just bubble away for for a while. I can imagine him singing, I can't wait to be king. Yes. Thinking, I'll be king of France. Little Simba. So Edward starts to sort of gain confidence with his rule. Um, he's in a very unsteady position. So he can't outright just invade France and declare himself king. Like yeah. He's not. Also, England yeah. has... England is like 5 million people. France is like 20 million people in this period. Yeah. So it's a much bigger kingdom. France is is much more powerful, has a much bigger army. But the the dispute with with um down in Guienne escalates and it goes through legal hell at the the courts of Paris as Philip demands that Edward pay compensations in order to get his land back. And down in the actual lands themselves, the the local people, the Gascons, are like feuding with the nearby mm. French lords. So Philip, he was very tenacious. He refused to give any grounds in the negotiations, mm. but he sort of treated the matter with a kind of arrogance that suggested he didn't really know what kind of bear he was poking. I uh, kind of saw England as beneath him. But meanwhile, on the military front, both Edward and Philip have other fish, uh, fish to fry, uh, Philip mm-hmm. is busy in Flanders and Edward is busy in Scotland. Of course. Of so course. now we have to broaden our scope a little bit to other parts of France and Europe because the outbreak mm-hmm. of the Hundred Years' War was not just motivated by Edward III wanting to the French throne, but by a very complex web of political interests that sort of spanned oh, much yeah. of Western Europe. A lot of things are happening all at once. And there's, this is sort of like a domino effect that will lead to the outbreak of war. And it's mostly oh. a, a series of other succession disputes that happen. Yeah. So in Flanders, um, we'll start with Flanders because it's, you know, it's the thing that Philip VI has to address first in his reign. Yeah. If you remember back to our last few episodes, uh, the guild leaders of the wealthy cities in Flanders have been rebelling mm-hmm. over and over again against yep. the kind of newish dynasty that rules Flanders which is the Dompierre, the, uh, the House of Dompierre, um, who right. are descended from Margaret the Black, the last member uh, of the House yeah. of Flanders. Yeah. But they, the Dompierres are ethnically more French than Flemish. Uh, uh. So they, they come from Champagne, and their recent members have been mostly raised in Burgundy and Paris. So they're oh. as French as French can be. Um, yeah. But they are currently trying to rule Flanders, and they don't really jive well with Understand the, them with the very wealthy sort of mayors of the cities who want more power because they are wealthier and they can like drum up mm-hmm. these big mercenary armies to take out the local nobility basically so our last king charles the fourth managed to make a treaty with the flemish rebels called the peace of arc which made them accept their new count louis the first but thanks to louis misrule they have risen up once mm-hmm. again and once again, the King of France has come in to clean up his vassal's mess. Um, mm. So at first, Philip VI and his council are hesitant to come to Count Louis' aid. Uh, obviously, negotiating with the rebels once hadn't worked. Um, and France hasn't yeah, had the best of luck marching armies into Flanders in recent d- decades. Um, if you remember, yeah. Louis X got kind of bogged mm-hmm. down immediately in Flanders. Yeah, he like, yeah, he like went there, saw the swamp and was like, uh-uh. Yeah, well, it was, and it was during the, it was at the start of the Great Famine as well. So it was not great times not for anyone. Time. No. Um, meanwhile, f- for his father, um, for Louis X's father, Philip IV, the cursed slapper, 
Um, his failed campaign in Flanders was his one downfall in the on guard category in his episode. Oh, yeah. So his like glittering army of knights was annihilated by a rabble of essentially peasants at Cotray, um, in what's called uh, the battle of the golden spurs. Um, cause it's kind of mocking the, <laughs> the fine, you know, raiment yeah. of the, the French knights. So while Philip the sixth did end up agreeing to march into Flanders, it was probably with a lot of trepidation as they met yeah. the Flemish rebel army at Cassel, which is very close to Cotray where the, where, Philip the Fourth has had has, has had his disaster, his, his downfall, and yeah, and Castel and Courtois are basically either side of the modern border of uh, France and Belgium, to put it huh. in context. Yeah, so there, Philip and his commanders were ambushed by the rebels just as they were sitting down for mm-hmm. supper, but they managed to rally and they managed to crush them. Quote with God's Ooh, miraculous nice. aid. Yes. Easier to win when you don't have a curse. They don't have a curse. Also, it's a sunny August in 1328. Um, So that's good. And Philip's army, despite, you know, having just sat down for lunch, um, they acted quickly and they scattered the Flemish with a successful charge of their heavy cavalry. Hmm. So Philip then proceeded to Bruges and then reinstalled Count Louis. Uh, and then he, you know, dusted off his hands and returned to Paris. Job well done. Yeah, nice. Nothing bad will ever happen in Flanders again. It's all fine now. <laughs> Flanders do, does stay sort of relatively peaceful, but, you know, nine, nine years later, in 37, they rebel mm. again, and this time it's essentially a revolution. Um, mm. So there's a charismatic guild leader from Ghent, called uh mm-hmm. called Jakob van Artefelder. Um Ooh, nice name. And Artefelder takes control of Flanders and rules, quote, tyrannically and unnaturally over the Flemings, according to Jean de Venette, who if you remember is the non-Flemish um <laughs> of the, mm. the non uh non from Belgium um uh chronicler, <laughs> the French one. And this is a fascinating event because it's the first time in hundreds of years that we've really seen a guy go from like nothing to being the leader of a european state artefelder began his life as as a uh a beer brewer um not a bad profession and then he rose up in the guild and ended up because he because of his you know magnetic charisma um Mm -hmm. you know became the ruler of flanders exactly so ultimately, Artevelde pledges Fra- Flanders' allegiance to Edward III, Ooh! along with 7,000 Flemish troops. Oh. Although Artevelde doesn't last long, he ends up getting accused of embezzlement and getting torn apart by an angry mob. Um, <laughs> and the chroniclers use his demise as proof that those without princely blood, blood should not rule. Um, but... <laughs> You know, his reputation got revived in the French Research. Revolution, oh. and he he has a big 19th century statue in Ghent in, in Belgium, yeah. where nice. he's from. But anyway, but for now, you know, Artefeld is there. He's a potential ally for Edward to use if he ever decides to hop across the channel. So let's now go to, to Bonnie, Scotland, um, yes. where Edward is fighting. Robert the Bruce, if you remember, was the mm-hmm. great hero who fought to regain Scottish independence. Yeah. But he's dead now. He dies on the 7th oh. of June, 1329, just one day after Edward III first 
like swore homage to Philip the Sixth. Um, and the death of the Bruce leads to a resurgence of tensions in the coming years as the kings of France and England take opposite sides in a Scottish civil war. Yeah. Scotland loves its civil wars. So Robert the Bruce, mm-hmm. the, you know, rah-rah anti-England independence guy, mm-hmm. um, he is succeeded by his five-year-old son, David Bruce, or David II oh. of Scotland, who is oh. then governed by a series of short-lived regions. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit chaotic on, on his end. Yeah. Meanwhile, Edward III, um, after getting rid of Mortimer and asserting his power in England, marches up to Scotland to back the claim of the Bruce's cousin and arch-rival, Edward Balliol. So his father, John Balliol, had been the puppet king of Scotland under King Edward I, when Scotland oh. effectively lost its independence. Um, oh. And there's a reason he named his son Edward uh, Balliol. <laughs> so... Oh. So Edward is supporting Edward to be King of Scotland, but I'll call him Balliol. Um, So we've got the Bruce faction who are pro-independence and the Balliol faction who are pro-England coming in and sorting things out. So the Bruce faction, now led by King David's bastard half-brother, Robert Jr., is more popular among the people of Scotland. So they easily marshal a force to try to fend off Edward III and Edward Balliol. But Balliol not only has the support of the English, but also a number of exiled Scottish lords who had fallen out of favour under the Bruce uh, reign. Um, so the Edwards come in with overwhelming force and they defeat the Bruces at the Battle of Halladon Hill Aww. on the 19th of July, 1333. Um, and this forces poor little David, um, King David, into exile. And Aww. guess where he flees to? France! France! So David, who's about eight years old at that at that point, Aww. lands in Normandy, accompanied by his whole court, um, as well as his wife, because yes, he has a wife. Um, <laughs> who guess what his wife is called? Joan Margaret. Yes, his wife is called Joan. <laughs> so this How old is she five? Yeah, she's about the same age as him. She okay. is ironically Edward III's little sister, Joan of the Tower. Yeah, so, <laughs> bit awkward. <laughs> there in the north of France, where David lands, King Philip comes and welcomes the King of Scots with open arms, um, making his stance extremely clear to the English. Um, so Philip even starts sending funding back to David's allies in Scotland who are fighting for him. Um, so the resistance against Edward Balliol. Um, Balliol, by the way, never officially becomes King of Scots, although he is crowned. He's, he's still disputed as a king today. He oh. didn't get a Rex Factor episode um, mm-hmm. because he's way too unpopular among the Scottish lords and he only manages to control a bit of Scotland. Um, just seen as England's po- um, puppet. Exactly, yeah. Meanwhile, Philip back in France sees himself as the natural protector of the young king of Scots, even though they don't even have like any kind of alliance. Mm-hmm. So he is said to have told the an English delegation arriving at Sonley that, quote, there will be no perfect Christian peace until the King of France sits in judgment over the three kingdoms of England, France, and Scotland. <laughs> so he's like, I'm actually the top dog here. I decide what's what. But Edward's not happy. So from this point on, Philip basically tells Edward of England, I'll give you back the lands that we took in Guienne if you allow David to return and become the King of Scotland. Oh. So he's now a, a very, very valuable bargaining chip. Yeah. So this puts Edward in a bit of a bind as he's already committed to Balliol and he's determined not to give any ground to France. 
So can't Balion mysteriously die in a tower? <laughs> well, no, Edward wants Balion to be the king of Scotland because then he's got a puppet in Scotland oh. and he's not got an unruly king of Scotland who keeps raiding him, which is what he had oh, under Robert yeah. the Bruce. Yeah. So once again, Philip, he's really poking the bear of Edward. He's, yeah. he's really making him mad. Um, but Edward still hasn't hulked out. Um, <laughs> so another bear that Philip pokes is one a little closer yeah. to home. Um, So one of his closest allies, when Philip first Mm -hmm. ascends the the French throne, is a guy called Robert of Artois, who we have very briefly met before, but you would not remember him. Mm -hmm. So uh, you may recall his aunt, Mao of Artois. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So she was a significant power behind the throne of our last few kings. So she was the Mm mother-in-law of both Philip V and Charles IV. Um, and in her own right, she ruled vast swaths of North and Eastern France. Mm. So when Margaret, sorry, not Margaret. So when Mao's father, the last Count of Artois, had died back in 1298, she had inherited Artois over her male nephew, Robert, by right of, quote, proximity of blood. <laughs> this is kind of the opposite of what's happened to France, really. Um, so, so she held on to Artois for 30 long years, despite, despite numerous yes. legal challenges and violent uprisings. So sheer force of will, she's, you know, overcoming the, you know, misogyny and she's holding on to that. Good on her! Yeah. So Mao, she, yeah, she, she's just a badass bitch, basically. And she proved to be Grand. a really good administrator as well. And the kings and the parliament in Paris consistently supported her over the young and unruly Robert. So with the Valois in charge, however, things looked like they might be different. Um, Robert of Artois just so happened to be married to Philip VI, um, half-sister. Guess what her name is? Joan. Yes, her name is Joan. Joan of Valois. (laughs) Um... Uh, so not only that, but Mao died of old age in 1329, the year after mm. Philip came to the throne. So it looks like, you know, Philip might support Robert to get that land that he's been wanting. <laughs> However, even though Robert of Artois, quote, helped more than anyone in the world to bring King Philip to the French throne, yeah. uh, according to Jean Lebel, and the two were, quote, special privy companions, <laughs> which... <laughs> Makes it sound like they went to the bathroom together. <laughs> to do some extra stuff. No, do some extra or me, uh, no, I was imagining them like um, you know, girls on a night out, like going to the bathroom oh together and like gossiping. I was I, imagining <laughs> them standing next to each other measuring. Be like, mine's bigger than yours. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Anyway, they are special privy companions. Um, so they're quite close, and they're brothers-in-law as well. Bathroom buddies. But Philip, because of his other obligations as king, could not commit to getting Robert his, his supposed birthright. Yeah. So Artois passed to Mao's eldest daughter, Joan of Other Burgundy, who was mm. the last queen of France. Uh, or, well, one of the... No, she was Philip V's wife. So she was the wife of the middle brother. She was the one who was involved in the Tour de Nell affair, but didn't get but accused didn't of adultery. Get, yeah. Yeah. So she's now inherited Mao's lands, which are Artois and other Burgundy. Nice. Um, yeah. So it's so confusing with all the drones. But so, so this Queen Joan 
is now one of three queen drones running around because the, the last queen was also called Joan. Um, so, oh, and we've got also got Joan the Second of Navarre. So, really, four queen drones are running around. <laughs> Grand. So we've got Joan the Lame, Joan of Evra, Joan of Navarre, and Joan um, of Other Burgundy. Um, but unfortunately, though, Joan of Other Burgundy only enjoys Artois for three months before she herself dies Ooh. shortly after her mother. Um, but she has a daughter as well, who's mm-hmm. also called Joan. Um, so, and uh, this is one of the passed over princesses, but she gets those lands of Artois and um, the county. God, of a drinking game for this episode would be how many times do we mention the name Joan? The name Joan. Well, you'll be under the table very quickly. There are more Joans to come. So, <laughs> so Artois has now passed through three women. And Robert of Artois is like, this is ridiculous. I'm a full-blooded Capetian of the direct male mm-hmm. line. I deserve to rule Artois. My name is Robert of Artois. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But remember, <laughs> Philip VI is in a very shaky position at the start of his reign. There's only so much he can do. He doesn't, you know, hold much authority up in the northeast in particular uh, in Artois, which is right next to Flanders, which is, you know, experiencing some problems. Yeah. Um, he does have control over Normandy, though. Um, nice. In fact, Philip VI appoints his eldest son uh, as the Duke of Normandy. And uh, guess what his eldest son is called? Philip Charles. No. no. What other names are there? Male version of Joan. John. John. Yeah, we've got another John. Okay. Uh, so the Duke of Normandy, Philip's eldest son is John. Um and uh, so Philip VI, because he controls Normandy, or at least his son does, he compensates Robert of Artois for his loss with the Norman county of beaumont le roger as well as several castles in the area. So Robert should be happy with this. This is like as much land as he to have in Artois. But this isn't enough for Robert. He's been fixated for his entire life on getting Artois. So he decides to employ a forger to produce uh, fraudulent legal documents showing that he was the mm. rightful count all along, rather than Mao. Mm. Guess what the forger's name is? What? Joan. <laughs> <laughs> so the forger, Joan de Divion, is herself an extremely interesting figure. She was a skilled astrologer and mystic um, cool. who actually entered high society as the mistress of the Bishop of Arras. Um, he bequeathed her a huge sum of 3,000 livres in his will, which nice. she used to cultivate her own household and, and became nice. a, um, a very skilled sort of spy and forger. Mm. Um, however, she met a tragic end when the forgery that she committed on Robert of Artois' behalf <laughs> was discovered. Mm. So upon discovering this crime, Philip VI demanded that Robert face justice But rather than appearing Mm. in court, Robert fled Paris to the Low Countries. So Philip flew into a rage. He confiscated all of Robert's property um, in Normandy. uh, And according to LaBelle said he would, quote, have Robert hanged. Um, So he's really mad. His friend has betrayed his trust. Um, Robert also left behind his wife and children, Philip's sister and uh, his niece and nephews who were put under house arrest and used as hostages for many years after. Ooh. So Phillips Damn. imprisoned his own flesh and blood. Damn. Um, yeah. He's not happy. Not happy at all. 
So Robert's forger, Joan de Divion, uh, received a much worse fate, though, um, as people of lesser birth always seem to do. So on the 6th of October, 1331, she was burned at the stake. Yeah. Robert, meanwhile, he fled to Namur, where the Duke of Brabant held his court. Brabant being a subject of the Holy Roman Empire rather than France. Um, Though, as we will see, France has an abundance of allies in this region, um, which is sort of the, like, a bit bit southeast of Flanders, more towards Germany, but not quite Germany. Um, Yeah. Sort of Luxembourg kind of area. Oh, nice. Um, Yeah. So France has a lot of influence in this area um, through various alliances. Um, while the Holy Roman Emperor, who's in Bavaria, his will is quite weak here. Um, so no sooner had Robert gotten, uh, to Brabant, than Philip started convincing Brabant's neighbors in Ainort and Luxembourg to turn against him and invade his lands, um, which resulted in Brabant having to expel Robert. So this time Robert fled, uh, guess where he flees? England? To England, across the channel. Well, he'll end up in Flanders, ultimately. So there in England, he started whispering in Edward III's ear about, you know, what a better king of France he would be, yeah, than his friend who had, had, you know, cast him out. Um, So this is essentially, this is a bad breakup between the the privy privy companions. (laughs) Privy buddies. The privy buds. Um, So... In December 1336, Philip ordered Edward to hand Robert of Artois over. And Edward's refusal ended up being the straw that broke the camel's back. Oh, it ignites. Yeah. So now Philip is harboring the enemy of England, the King of Scots, and Edward is harboring the enemy of France, Robert of Artois. Edward was considered in outright defiance of his liege lord. He was in breach of his his contract. So Philip now had all the justification he needed to confiscate Guienne. And we have a quote. Because of the many excesses, rebellious and disobedient acts committed by the King of England against our royal majesty. So this attempted confiscation has happened before several times, including uh, in the previous reign of Charles IV, which was the War Mm. of San Sados, when... Valois invaded Aquitaine. But this time, Edward III's claim on the French throne meant far more serious consequences for France. So in 1337, he withdrew his oath of homage and the Hundred Years' War officially began. So... That was a very long preamble to the war, but it has now started, officially. Spurred on by the advice of Robert of Artois and jaded by the numerous insults uh, that Philip had done him when it came to Guienne and Scotland, Edward III ends up crossing the Channel once again in January 1340, this time not to give homage, but to make war, exactly. So he goes to the city of Ghent in Flanders, currently under the control Mm -hmm. of... Jakob van Artefelder. <laughs> and Artefelder recognizes Edward as his rightful king. And it's here in Ghent oh. that Edward first embraces the title king of France. Um, from this point on, referring to Philip of Valois as, quote, the one who calls himself king of France. Oh. 
Um, but uh, historians like Anne Curry stressed that Edward III declaring himself King of France was a result of the Hundred Years' War and not its cause. Because this happens three years into the war. Um, so by that time, he and Philip had already been at war down in Guienne for, for three years. Um, but it's more skirmishes until now. Yeah, now it's like It's not outright sort of campaigns. So... Edward also at this point challenged Philip to single combat. Philip's <laughs> <laughs> like, which, yeah, nah. Which was, you know, it was seen as a valid way for God to decide who should win an argument between two, like, knights. Um, yeah. But uh, Edward is 28 while Philip is 47 at this point. Yeah, he's not so, that agile. So, yeah. So Philip obviously does not respond to the challenge. <laughs> he's like, let's pretend I never got that yeah. message. Yeah. He's like, oh, uh, you sent me a me- you sent me a message. When was yeah. that? Oh, it's, it's on r- it's on red, but like just never applied to. Yeah, it's very awkward. Um, so he, he's just ghosted. Um, yeah. So most sources give the date of the Hundred Years' War starting as thirteen thirty seven, so three years mm-hmm. before Edward's landing in Flanders. But up to this point, as I said, the war has just been a series of standoffs and skirmishes between the two sides. Yeah. Most of the activity taking place down in Guienne, where both sides are basically just, like, building up their fortresses, preparing yeah. for a bigger conflict. Meanwhile, Edward is cultivating his alliances in the Low Countries. He's got Flanders, mm-hmm. but he's also trying his hardest to get the family of his wife, Philippa of Ainort, on side. Oh. So Ainort is a bit caught in the middle. Um, yeah. It's ruled by the Aven family, who, like mm-hmm. their rivals, the Dompiers, are descended from Margaret the Black of Flanders. They're basically... Yes. If you remember Margaret the Black on a, in our Patreon episode had like two marriages and like one of them mm-hmm. are the Aven brothers and yeah. one of them are the Dompier brothers. So they're the descendants of this conflict and they're, they're still, you know, at loggerheads. Um, yeah. However, the Ainots are also allied to the Valois. Oh. So Philippa's own mother, so the Queen of England's own mother, was Philip VI, full sister, who guess what her name is? Joan. Joan. Joan of Valois. So uh, this is the second Joan of Valois. <laughs> um, who's, so Philip has a full sister and a half sister, both called Joan. This is the full sister. Um, okay. So the Ainots are very much torn because they've got yeah. their daughter married to the King of England and they've got their, oh, sorry, so the, for the current count would be his sister. So his sister's married yeah. to the King of England. His mother is the sister of the King of France. So it's like, yeah, who do I support? There's also a lot of naval activity going on because, of course, mm. there's water between England yeah. and France. Um, what? I had no idea. <laughs> so Philip VI is being very proactive in building up a French navy, though admittedly he originally intended for the navy to be used in a crusade, which he was planning <laughs> in the summer of 1336. Um, but that's so what's happening. Yeah. So he, he first, uh, so yeah, that was the year before the war. He was, he was planning a crusade. But he first started constructing the fleet in Marseille um, down on the Mediterranean, but then diverted those resources to build a fleet in the English Channel. And the French told the English that this was purely for defensive purposes. Um, but the English became paranoid that this fleet would be used to deliver King David back to Scotland, um, or worse, uh, pull a Louis the Lion and try to put a French prince on the English throne. So, like, we're not taking that risk. 
Yeah, because, you know, it's happened before. So part of Edward's reasoning for going to war with France is also self-defense. In fact, there were already combined French and Scottish raids happening all along the English coast, particularly targeting the sink ports in the southeast. And at one point, shortly before the declaration of war, a combined French and Scottish force led by John of St. Agatha attacked the English Mm -hmm. port of Southampton um, and uh, burned a bunch of ships and took a bunch of loot. And when they Mm -hmm. got back to Normandy, the French government refrained from confiscating their goods. Um, seeing their raid as, quote, a just act of war. And this was before the war was even declared. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So as far as the local government of Normandy is concerned, they're already at war. <laughs> <laughs> From 1339 to 1340, while Edward is making friends in the Low Countries, the French has started gathering a more cohesive fleet very close by in New Zealand um, mm-hmm. at a place called Slois at the mouth of the river Scheldt. And uh, this is probably the fleet that's going to make the final push for an invasion of England. So he's amassing a huge fleet here. So Edward, having hopped back to England to gather his forces, leaves the Thames estuary at the head of his own massive fleet, making a beeline for Zealand. Yes. So thus we get the Battle of Slois, and it was one of the largest and bloodiest naval battles in medieval history. Cool. So on the French side, there were mostly uh, hired mercenaries, uh, including crossbowmen from Genoa, which become a core part of the French army. French, not really into archery. They prefer, you know, knights on shining armor, on horses. Um, And they hire archers from Italy. Um, But the English not only have the King of England himself present, but they also have his secret weapon, which will serve the English well for the next century, which was the longbow. Oh. Yes. Which, as we will find, is much better than the crossbow. So longbows derived from Wales uh, originally. Mm. They're basically uh, what the name says. Very, very long bows. That are about the height of a six-foot man. Um, Yeah. And they were developed by um, Edward for use against the Scots. The Scots were very good at hand-to-hand combat, so they wanted to keep them at a distance. Pick them off. So the range reached 300 yards, which is 275 meters. um, And a trained archer could fire 10 to 12 arrows a minute in comparison to the crossbow. uh, Which, although... Yeah. So the, the crossbow had more penetrating power and didn't require special training to use. So anyone could use yeah. crossbow, basically. But had a much shorter range and could only yeah. fire two bolts a minute um, compared to 10 to 12. So that's yeah. quite a difference. Yeah. Plus, when de- deployed on the field, it took double the manpower because a crossbow needed an attendant called a pavisier to um, hold up a shield while they reloaded to protect them from um. enemy fire. Whereas if you're a longbowman, yeah. you're just you're just you know, you know firing at a constant right. rate. So Edward was kind of making up for his inferior numbers with superior weapon technology. Weaponry. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he, had, he he invested very heavily in his longbows. Uh, he even well, prohibited all sport except for archery in England. So he banned football uh, and other sports. Um, so he had a, he ended up with a huge body of skilled longbowmen from the general population that he could call up nice smart yeah very smart and by the end of the hundred years war these long women have you know been 
several generations training for their whole lives, you know? Yeah. There we go. So on both French and English sides, we also have gunpowder. Um, not on the ships at Slois. We don't yet have like ship guns. Yeah, we would hope. We've got sort of early field cannons called uh, Ribot. They weren't yet very strong, fast or accurate. They couldn't yet knock down castle walls or do significant damage to an oncoming cavalry charge. So mainly they're just providing some background noise um, (laughs) during these earlier battles. Uh, But they are developing. They are quickly developing. By the end of the war, they will be very prominent features of uh, of battle. So the Battle of Slois, it's mostly determined by the archers um, between the ships. So needless to say, the Battle of Slois destroyed the French fleet and gave England command over the channel because, you know, English had better morale. Their king is actually there. And the French have inferior crossbow technology. So at first, nobody dared to inform Philip of the defeat yeah. of Slice. Um, <laughs> his, uh, his court fool was pushed forward to tell him. Oh, um, and he gave him the news by saying, Oh, the cowardly English. They did not jump overboard like our brave Frenchmen. Ah! <laughs> There was also like a, le- a legend that uh, the fish at sl- uh, around Slois spoke French after that because they drank so much French blood. Oh my god, that is hilarious! Yeah. So once his army had landed, Edward advanced south through the Allied mm. Flanders into Picardy, which is ruled directly by Philip of Valois and his allies, and thus mm. begins the first of the English chevauchées. So a chevauchée, which sounds like a fun dance move, um, is actually a horrific, basically uh, scorched earth kind of tactic. I hate those tactics. Where you just go through the enemy lands, you destroy everything you can see, you make the land unfarmable, you kill every man, woman, and child. um, Salting the earth. I don't know if they salted the earth, but they definitely, you know, in the short term, cause as much destruction as possible. Yeah, I hate when they do that. And this just makes it, you know, this makes it faster to go through. It means you can pay your army as you go with with loot that you get. Um, And it demoralizes the the enemy. It makes them be like, why did I support, you know, the wrong guy? In response to the Chevauchet, Philip decides that the best strategy is to avoid the English in open battle. Mm. And let them kind of tuck yeah. themselves out. Um, <laughs> which is called Fabian tactics. Um, because it, way back in Roman history, which Philip has actually studied quite a bit. Uh, Fabius was a guy who fought against Hannibal um, yeah. when he was rampaging through Italy. And basically like just decided to not face Hannibal. And that's how Hannibal got <laughs> defeated in the end. Because he just ran out of steam. Yeah. And like Hannibal before, this actually works. So after a couple months of chevaucheting, uh, Edward III starts running out of steam. He becomes open to negotiation because he's failed to capture the major strongholds of, of Tournai and Saint-Omer, which held out against his army in sieges. So he's been ravaging the land around these important, you know, fortified cities, but, but he can't actually... Captured them. He can't actually capture the, the key strongholds, yeah. Oh. Meanwhile, the Pope is not so keen on England and France being at oh. war. He's very pro-peace. He really wants them to join forces in a, in a crusade because he hasn't crusade, given up on that. Yep, yep. Um, 
Also, if you remember, the Pope is down in Avignon now, so he's more, you know, like yeah, who's the Pope the right now? Clement the Sixth. Okay. Um, and he's a he's French. Oh yeah. His 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 birth name is Jacques Fournier, so he's very French. Yeah, I'm um, guessing the English aren't going to trust him. Yes, although Avignon is, as I said, is technically still outside of French territory, yeah. and a lot of the yeah. popes come from parts of France that aren't necessarily ruled by the King of France, but still. Yeah. There's still some bias there. Yeah, a bit too close to comfort. Exactly. So, you know, all of this pressure from the Pope, from, you know, his army not getting very far, as, as far as he'd have liked, I guess, Edward becomes open to negotiations. And uh, yeah. during the peace negotiations, Philip makes a savvy move by not negotiating yeah. with Edward directly, but by sending his sister Joan, the widowed Countess oh! of Ainault, who is Edward's mother-in-law, Oh my god, smart little cookie. So she goes to negotiate a peace. By the way, Joan, she's been widowed and she's essentially a nun now. Um, but she's retained her like political savvy and she yeah. manages to nice. negotiate a quite a favorable peace. Um can't say no to your mother-in-law. I mean, it's really just a, a truce because of course this war is going to go on gonna for a little while. For a while. Um, <laughs> just a tad more. But it's the first truce of the Hundred Years' War, and it's signed between the two kings at Esplechin on the 25th of September, 1340. Um, and this will last for the next nine months. So, oh, so long. Edward's, well, you know, the Edward's, it at least puts an end to Edward's first attempt to invade France. It's sort of cut short. Yeah. But Philip is really just stalling against oh. the inevitable, because the, the English yeah. have tasted blood and they'll be back. Um, mm. So now we have to move on to other theatres of, of war um, yes. that are happening around the place. Okay. We've got stuff happening in Brittany. Yeah. Similar to Scotland, they're having a succession dispute. Mm-hmm. So the nine-month truce has barely even begun when Philip gets some disturbing news uh, that turns the tide of the war once again. So on right. April 1341, on the way home from supporting him in Picardy, Duke John III of, B- of Brittany dies and he dies without clear a clear heir. So just like in Scotland, Hello. there's now a succession dispute. So uh, Barbara Tuckman calls Brittany, quote, the Scotland of France, which I think is rather <laughs> accurate. So like Scotland, it's sort of a colder northern area. It's Celtic yeah. in origin. Its people are notoriously hard to rule and it's rocky and rainy. Plus, France and England are always using it as a pawn in their squabbles. Mm. So in this case, the War of Breton Succession is fought between John of Montfort, who's backed by England, Mm. and his niece Joan of Pontier, another Joan, um, who's backed by France. Um, Backing a woman, damn. Yeah. So, well, they're kind of backing her husband. Um, Yeah. So... Uh, Montfort was given the English earldom of Richmond, so he's very much in the English camp, and recognised Edward as the rightful king of France, while Joan was married to Charles of Blois, who is a nephew of Philip VI. Mm. So that's why they support who they support, basically. Yeah. So Joan and Charles, they make a good team. Charles of Blois led the Franco-Breton army in the field, while Joan of Pontievre fiercely defended Brittany from what amounts as an English invasion. They don't call it an English invasion. 
but it's but you know it is, please. John of Montfort coming in with an English army. If that's not an invasion, I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, but it's led by the English uh, commander Sir Thomas Dagworth, which is a great name. Yeah, that is a good name. So after four years of fighting, Montfort fell very ill and died, severely weakening the English that's position. But but they were now fighting for John's son, who's a child who's being raised in England. Mm-hmm. So it looks like the French-backed Pontievre faction would win the day. Um, but then Charles of Blois was defeated by Thomas Dagworth and captured in battle. Oh, no. So Joan of Pontievre, she's been separated from her husband, but she's still holding out, and she will continue mm-hmm. to rule as the contested Duchess of Brittany for the next two decades. Yes, queen. Before she eventually has to abdicate and retire. Oh. But in the short term, things aren't looking great for France because the English have used this succession war as an excuse to capture numerous valuable ports in Brittany and install Mm. permanent garrisons there. So if you combine this with the naval victory at Sluis, England now controls quite well, like a lot of the sea, basically. They control both the Channel and a, a bit of the Atlantic coast as well. France still has, like, a strong base in La Rochelle, uh, which Philip mm. manages to maintain. Uh, so it's a bit harder for uh, the English to land troops one. down in Gascony. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just one. Now, you may have noticed that we've left out a crucial piece to the puzzle of, of the territory dispute. So what is between Brittany and Flanders? Normandy. Normandy. The mouth I, of the I River Seine, which leads directly to Paris. Vikings. The current English monarchy descends directly from William the Conqueror of Normandy, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Normandy has been part of the royal domain for over a century. Yeah. And its people, by and large, are loyal to the King of France. Nice. But there are numerous lords in Normandy who, because of their personal grievances with Philip, will end up turning their coats, just like Robert of Artois did. Yeah. Philip making too many enemies. Also remember, Queen Joan II of Navarre has land up in Normandy. Um, oh, yeah. The counties of Mortain, Longueville, and Evre are controlled by her. Um, either in her own she right backs or England, through it, like her son. And well, she doesn't back England. She backs France. She nominally oh. supports France, but she allows the English to pass freely through yeah. her lands. So she's kind she of in the is. middle, playing both sides. There's also an unruly Viscount in Normandy called oh, Geoffrey right. of Arcourt, um, okay. who is about to be a major nuisance. So Geoffrey, or, uh, or Geoffroy, he fought on uh, Philip VI's side during Edward's first invasion, but his loyalty ends when Geoffrey, like Robert of Artois, ends up on the run from the law. <laughs> Of course. What'd he do? So he had desired to marry a wealthy local heiress named... Ah, Joan. Joan. (laughs) Joan Bacon. um, Or Bacon. Joan Bacon. She was instead promised to Guillaume Bertrand, the son of Geoffrey's bitter rival, the Baron de Bricquebec. So a private war ensued between the Arcours and the Bertrands, who... Uh, like the Montagues and Capulets of Normandy. Nice. Before the king intervenes to break it up. Yeah. So enraged that the king had thwarted his quest for revenge, Geoffrey started plotting with Edward III, um, who agreed to make Geoffrey the governor of Normandy if he supported his next invasion of France. Mm. Yeah. 
So Philip's agents catch wind of the plot. And then just like Robert of Artois, Geoffrey of Arcor has to flee Please. to England where Edward III appoints him as his marshal um, of his army alongside the Earl of Warwick. So Geoffrey is like a, a hugely valuable asset for Edward. Yeah. He's a skilled, competent military commander, and he knows the land of Normandy very well. Mm. And Normandy will be the, Edward's next target. Mm. So then we come to 1346. Yes. So Philip has been on the throne for nearly two decades at this point. Oh, wow. He's managed to hold things together pretty well. The borders of England and France haven't really changed, despite England now controlling the seas. The Earl of Derby, one of Edward's cousins, Mm -hmm. is campaigning down in Guienne. uh, And he captures the French cities of Agen and Angoulême. So Philip goes down to deal with them, leaving his wife Joan the Lame as the regent in Paris. For the third time in his reign. He's had to do this Whoa. a couple of times. She's good then. Um, she's quite good. So the southern campaign is a success with the French Yay. counterattack pinning down the Earl of Derby at Aiguillon. But Philip is going to have to leave his son and heir, John, in charge of this campaign because he has to go north because Edward has landed in Normandy with 15,000 uh, troops. Ooh. And how many this does France the, have? This is the largest invading army that I think france has seen to date uh france has a bit more yeah oh um i but they're not all there i cannot find the, the exact numbers some of them are down in gascony but then again some yeah. of the england's are down in gascony as well so right. there the french army is definitely larger than the english army but this is it still doesn't like necessarily mean you'll win it doesn't necessarily mean you win and this is still a ter- terrifying number and normandy is pretty defenseless so after landing in July 1346, Edward proceeds to Chevauchet, um, as mm-hmm. he does. And it's even more horribly devastating this time. Oh. Uh, one person I read called it the Hiroshima of Normandy. Damn. Yeah, it's it's real bad. You must um, have been. So the French army, meanwhile, does the Fabian tactics again, avoiding battle. And uh, they also burn bridges to impede the English. Um, hoping they run out of steam again. And they also successfully defend uh, their main stronghold. So the Norman Ooh. capital of Rouen holds out um, against nice. an English attack, though they lose the key stronghold of Caen. Oh, no. And the English make it all the way to the outskirts of Paris. Oh, damn. Yeah, so then we get an account of Jean de Venette, who's an eyewitness to the English approach of Paris. Poor little monk inside the city. Vanette writes that the English burned many villages right up to the gate of Neuilly. They even burned the tower of Montjoie, which the King of France had had magnificently rebuilt not long before. I, who have written this, saw all these deeds, for they could be seen from Paris by anyone who would ascend a turret. These fires and the close approach of the English to Paris overwhelmed everyone in the city with stupefied amazement, for no one had ever thought to see such a thing. So this is bad. English are right there. Yeah, they're right at the door. But the English are unable to approach the city because the French had encamped nearby in overwhelming force and would descend on the English if they tried to lay siege. So Edward decides to change his tactic a bit. Uh, He decides to go link up with allied troops in Flanders. Um, So he's going to go north a bit. And Chevauchet all the way up there. So he now marches northeast towards Picardy, 
and smelling the weakness and seeing an opportunity to finally catch out Edward, Philip finally plays his hand Ooh. and pursues. So he goes to the Basilica of St. Denis first. He takes the Oriflamme banner and he rides <gasps> at the head of his army out of Paris Whoa. and northward to finally confront the King of England. Yes. So Edward successfully manages to cross the river Somme. So he, he moves very freakishly fast, fast. Um, north. Um, he finds a secret ford that the French couldn't destroy, which buys him enough time to set up his troops at Crecy oh no. en Pontieu, awaiting the French arrival on the 26th of August, 1346, which is the date of the Battle of Crecy. Mm-hmm. So Edward positions his army defensively. So at what the top of the hill. Ready? Longbows at the ready. He commands his troops from the top of a windmill, which is quite funny. Oh, um, nice. Ordering his knights and men at arms to dismount and form up in front of his secret weapon, the longbows, as well as the, the 200 men at arms. Edward has three to 4,000 Welsh footmen and five to 7,000 archers. So he's really invested in these archers. Yeah. Meanwhile, Philip's army is rushing to catch up to the English. They're arriving tired. in dribs and dregs and they're Wait. still trying to get themselves organized into formation no. when the longbows start firing at them no. yeah so philip at this point probably should have retreated and given given his army time to get in proper formation especially because it was late afternoon and his army had been marching for a full day but he was like not nope. but philip and his cocky commanders confident that they're like. Shiny knights were superior in number, equipment, and skill. Could not bear the thought of, the humiliating thought of holding back. Oh, no. They're also worried that Edward, uh, if he gets enough time, might be able to slip away and link up with his reinforcements in Flanders. So Uh, they're in a rush. So Philip orders his Italian crossbows forward. But as I said, Mm -hmm. uh, they have less range than the British longbows. Uh, they are well. They have more penetrating power, but they just they need to get but, in range like, first, and they're they're getting yeah, fired up I mean. before they can even get in range. Yeah. yeah, and the the crossbows have barely fired a shot before they look behind them and see that the French cavalry have started charging already. Oh god, they're gonna get squishled. So, so the <laughs> so the crossbowmen scatter and flee as half of them are trampled uh, by knights from their own side. Oh, um, god. One of the chroniclers compares it to. Uh, pigs getting butchered um, is the the carnage of gore that happens. Um, meanwhile, the French knights don't even reach the English lines before breaking and dispersing, decimated by the rain oh. of arrows. So these are some Gosh. strong bows. Yeah, um, they're good. On their top of a hill too. Yeah, exactly. And they've got all these men at arms dismounted in in front of them holding up their you know spears and that sort of thing yeah. stop the, the horses so the the french knights sort of regroup they try to charge again and this time they clash with the enemy lines but philip himself gets wounded by an arrow oh, in, no. this, in this scuffle the english managed to hold their ground successfully against the french cavalry fighting well into the night and at last the wounded king philip has to order a retreat and the English no. have won the Battle of Cressy, the the oh, first no. big battle of the Hundred Years' War. Obviously, it was won by the Longbow, um, as we'll see many battles getting won by the long- Longbow, and lost by French pride and hubris. Mm. One of Philip's commanders is his ally, King John of Bohemia. Oh. Um, 
who, despite being completely blind, is renowned for his prowess and chivalry. Um, He led the Teutonic Order uh, in their crusade against the pagans of Lithuania. Um, So he's quite a renowned sort of holy warrior king. Um, So he insists on riding into battle, fully bedecked in his regalia of ostrich feathers. Um, Damn, fancy king. I'm guessing that's a target though. And he's blind. So he has his horse tied to two of his knights on either side. And at the end of the carnage, the English found John of of Bohemia and his knights dead on the field with their dead horses still tied together. Oh, at least they died together. There's a legend that Edward III's teenage son, who's president of the battle, um, Edward Prince of Wales, otherwise known as the Black Prince, Uh, um, upon discovering the King of Bohemia, after the battle, the decided to to honor the courage of his dead opponent, um, oh. and he took uh, his symbol of the ostrich feather and his motto of Ichdeen, meaning "I serve," as his own. Oh. And this is just a legend, but to this day, the Prince of Wales has an ostrich feather on his coat of arms and uses the motto Ichdeen. Oh wow! Yeah, That's a nice little tradition. That's a nice little fact there. Um, mm. But yeah, the death of John of Bohemia is a huge blow to the French morale. He's one of many uh, great commanders who who died in the Battle of Cressy, which was was like uniquely deadly of a battle. Uh, Usually the the custom was to capture nobility in battle, if you could, rather than kill them. And Edward later chastised his his soldiers for for killing Killing too many of the commanders rather than taking them as prisoners because they would have fetch quite a price and edward's yeah, you know, running low on money too. exactly so the uh, so other people who died were philip's brother the count of alenson oh, he no. perished the good fighter yeah the good fighter he died oh. as did count louis of flanders oh. as well as the count of blois the father of charles of Brittany, the guy who's imprisoned um oh. over in Brittany. So yeah, an, an uncommonly deadly battle. Anyone on the English? No one significant on the English side because, you know, they're protecting themselves. Did well. Uh, the Black Prince nearly dies in this battle, but doesn't. Oh. Um, meanwhile, uh, King Edward is up in, up in his windmill the whole time. Back to King Philip of France. He, he runs, he flees from the battle with his knights. He arrives miserably at the nearby castle of La Bois, where Foissart tells us, quote, He found the gate shut and the drawbridge up, for it was now fully night and pitch dark. He called for the captain of the castle, who came to the lookout turret and shouted down, Who comes knocking at this hour? King Philip answered, Open your gate, captain. It is the unfortunate king of France. Just kind of a play on his name, because he's called Philip the Fortunate at the start of his reign. Yeah. So meanwhile, Edward's army... Don't pursue the French. They hold their position uh, and then proceed north to capture the citadel of Calais, um, one of the most valuable ports on the channel. So Edward couldn't get Paris, but he could at least get Calais, uh, which is mm. becomes uh, very important uh, from this point. So after getting mm. his army back together after the humiliation at Cressy, Philip marches to Calais to meet the English mm-hmm. there, but he finds that the English have once again taken up a very strong defensible position, uh, yeah. this time on the, the high dunes, the sand dunes surrounding the city. 
Edward had also plundered the surrounding countryside and he blocked off the sea route. So he was getting regular shipments from England that Mm. were supplying him in the siege of Calais. So in the end, Philip is unable to help Calais, which capitulates in August 1347, the year after Cressy and about 10 years into the war overall. And England is going to hold Calais for the next 210 years. Ah, yeah. So long after the Hundred Years' War and into the Tudor period. Mm. So it's actually, it's lost in the reign of uh, Queen Mary I. Mm. So there's not much Philip can do about getting Calais back, but there's also Mm. not much Edward can do about conquering France. Because guess what starts happening to both France and England in 1347? Plague. Plague. So the Black Death ravages France. We covered it a little uh, in a bit more detail last episode. And as we said last episode, it claims the life of Joan II of Navarre. Yeah. But it also claims the life of another Joan. Oh no. Which of the many Joans do you think it? The Queen. The Queen, Philip's wife, who was already frail, dies of uh, the plague. The plague also claimed uh, Philip's son, John's wife, Bonne of Bohemia, who was the daughter of uh, King John the Blind, the the guy who died at Cressy. Yeah. Um, Oh, no. So now Philip and his son son are both both single. In mourning. Um, But Philip, you know, he's old. He's not looking, he's not long for this world. Um, Yeah. And France will need a new queen when his son, John, succeeds to the throne. So Philip starts to look for a new wife uh, for John. And decides to make an alliance with Navarre. Oh. Yeah. So Joan II's daughter, Blanche of Navarre, is now a teenager. So she's brought to court in Paris as a prospective wife for John. But the 16-year-old princess arrives in Paris and Philip is so struck by her beauty that he decides to steal his son's betrothed and marry Blanche himself. Oh my god. (laughs) Drama. Yeah. So poor Blanche. Um, <laughs> she thinks she's going to be the next queen of France, but she's now just the queen of the the dying king, basically. Yeah. Um. Right. So Philip the Sixth is at, in his mid fifties at this point, and not a well man. He's severely depressed yeah. after the disaster of Cressy and the loss of many of his friends and family. So Blanche of Navarre is the queen of France for seven months. Damn. Because Philip VI dies on the 22nd of August, 1350, and he's buried in the Basilica of Saint-Denis alongside his first wife, Joan the Lame. Um, and his firstborn son becomes the new king of France, John II. But he needs a queen. Well, we'll get to that next episode of who he chooses as queen. He can't marry Blanche anymore because she has been spoiled <laughs> by and his father. His and Blanche is... Blanche is actually pregnant when Philip dies. Oh, damn, that was so quick work. An, another posthumous baby. I mean, they're married for seven months. So. Still. That's time. That's plenty of time. And she's, you know, 16. Ugh, it's so gross. Um, I know. So that's the life of Philip VI. And we'll get into a bit more detail in Enchanté. Enchanté. So this is the portrait of Philip VI by Robert Fleury, 19th century artist. What do you think? Um, mm, 
they're uneventful, like unrememberable. I mean, God, it's like a bad back back um round, like uh, like you know, when you go to get to the uh photo when you go to the, like a studio to get your photos done, or, like a school portrait background. Yeah, it's not as like realistic as a lot of the ones we see. It's a bit cartoony, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it does have a sword at least. Yeah, he's got a, a sheath sword. sword. He's got this weird, like, metal sash thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know what that's. He's got a very basic like. crown. Looks like he's more monk robes. Well, no, he's got a, what do you call it? A tabard, which is like a, a tunic you wear over armor. I know. Just. But, um, and he's got the. Monk. I don't know why. He's got the bob that, that they all have. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's just. Faces so he's got a, weird. He does have a very French nose. I'll say that. It's a very long face. So that's the portrait. So as a young man, uh, Philip cut quite the figure. He's described as tall and robust. Um, but around his thirties, around his thirties, he started becoming obese. Um. um. But in medieval manuscripts from the time, he is the typical like spindly man with the curly blonde bob that we see in just about every depiction of a king. Um, yeah, so we'll see a bit of king. that. Well, it's just it's just every king looks the same. Every king has the same blonde mm-hmm. bob. So if you go to the second image, yeah, this is him and his wife, Joan the Lame, getting crowned. Oh, nice. I like how um, their eyes are looking up. <laughs> yeah, and everyone's everyone's got that typical, uh, very weirdly worried expression that, that people in medieval manuscripts. It's like, oh my god, have. there's a ghost. That's what their facial expression is. is. So that's Philip and Joan's yeah. coronation. Uh, then the next image, we've got Edward III swearing homage to Philip. I knew we were going to um, have that. Why does he have like a magician's thing hovering over him? Yeah, I think he's got like a little canopy. Hat. He's got a little canopy above his head. Yeah, it looks like a little wizard's um, hat. It looks like a wizard's hat that's just floating above him. Like from Sword in the Stone. Like yeah. that wizard. Then we've got a, a, a really nice... Uh, gorgeous 15th century manuscript um, yeah. image, which is so. This is Philip presiding over the trial of Robert of Artois, um, which okay. Robert of Artois is not okay. present for um, because he fled. Uh, um, yeah. But you see Philip sort of holding court uh, at the top of uh, this big mm. hall. I yeah, assume it's meant nice. to be. With lots of little figures in it, it's a very lovely. And you got the banners. Yeah, and this is the Wikipedia image of of Philip the Sixth. In case anyone, you got the banners. Yeah, you've got everyone's got their crest above them to show you them what they're the bishop of or what they're the count of. Yeah, I like that Um, detail. It's very lovely. I think I like this one the best. But everyone looks identical. Everyone's just a a spindly man with a with a blonde bob. Yeah, and I'd say I do like this one the best out of the depictions. I like Philip's little feet. Yeah, <laughs> teeny weeny feet. Um, so they're kind of weirdly bent over. And he's look—he's sitting in Dagobert's chair. Woo-hoo. Yeah, got to sit in Dagobert's chair. Yeah, are you even king? So that's lovely. That's a lovely manuscript. Then we've got. Next image, a depiction of the Battle of Cressy from a 15th century oh. copy of Foissart's Chronicle. So again, it's a bit later on, this artwork is. Oh, nice. Oh, got the longbows. 
Yeah, got the long bows on the side. Of course, you have the French on the ground because they just had pathetic. Yeah, you can see like a guy on the ground just being just like a rag doll, just like flopping dead. around, very dead. Um, and in the, also in this painting, bow, we see the first glimpse that we've had on the podcast of the new English standard of Edward yeah. III, which is the, oh, yeah. the fleur-de-lis crossed with the English lions. Ooh. Um, so you see that. Yeah. Also, the the oriflam is there in the middle of the two banners. Um, yeah. It says Saint-Denis on it. Nice. Yeah. Oh, there's also one last depiction, which is uh, from the funeral of Philip. So it's, it's his coffin being brought for burial in Saint-Denis, oh, uh, followed everyone's... by a, a crowd of mourners. In um, black, except for that little bit of black. blue. Yeah, so he's been carried in by some pallbearers and, and bishops. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, he's got a lovely range of depictions, does Philip VI. Yeah, he does. Really in a way that we haven't seen since St. Since Louis. But at the same time, we're going to find that this many images will become the norm Yeah. Um, in this period, which is lovely for us, uh, mm. but also means, you know, Let's not be too impressed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but our next king, uh, John II, has an actual surviving portrait that he sat for, <gasps> which oh. I've seen in the Louvre. So get excited oh, for that. We're going to have our first contemporary is... portrait. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, we're going to start relying less and less on, on 19th century images as we go forward. Although we'll, we'll oh. still look at those as well. Yeah. Um, still we'll still feature those because they're part of the legacy. Yeah. Of how future generations see the king. So yeah. Philip is known as Philip of Valois, also known as Philip the Fortunate. Uh, he's also known as Philip the Catholic, because he was quite re- well regarded by the popes. Um, mm. With his efforts to, you know, despite his uh, lack of success overall uh, in doing this, he he was very pro-peace and he was very pro-crusade. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, pro-peace between Christians, pro-war against other people, which, you know, never really yeah. ended up happening. But, you know, that's Made the Pope Philip happy. VI. And, of course, he's the first king in the Valois dynasty. That's important. Yeah. Yes. Important part of the legacy. Yeah. So i got to consider that. Mm. So what do we think we'll give him for Enchanté? Definitely well, considering... better than the last few kings. <laughs> yeah, but cons- he's going to, yeah. But he's known as the king who's started like this hundred year war started in yeah that's true it's not good legacy that's yeah. i think that's more sort of negatives for on guard than for yeah okay i think yeah looking okay. at just you know the images and the yeah the uh the reputation yeah good nice to look at that he's a he's 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 a bit fat but um <laughs> Otherwise, cuts a cuts a good figure. But yeah, the portrait the portrait's a bit the portrait itself is a bit underwhelming, isn't it? Yeah, it's. But I'm like, yeah. I don't know. I think that lovely 15th century manuscript of the trial yeah, of Robert of Yeah, I know. I do love that. Kind of just kind of makes up for it. It's such a yeah, good I know it does image. I know. What are you thinking? I think it's definitely middly. Yeah, I was thinking like a five or six. Yeah, maybe. but I was thinking which way a uh, five. I, you know, I'm inclined to be generous. I think I'd give him a six. I think I'll it's just stick above. with a five. Yeah, that way we're splitting just... the difference a bit. All right, so that's an eleven for Enchanté. Okay. Now moving on to On Guard. On Guard. Got some more details here. So both in life and after his death. 
Philip has had an uphill battle as the first king of a new dynasty, but also the king who lost the great battle of Cressy. Um, mm. And he's up against Edward III, who has one of the best reputations of any king ever. Um, yeah. So Barbara Tuckman wrote that Edward, quote, shone in those qualities his time admired in a king uh, with a love of pleasure, battle, glory, hunts and tournaments and extravagant display. Well, I suppose um, in a way to hold up it, like even like to not immediately lose is decent enough. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so Based contemporaries... On of Edward. So getting a bit more into Philip VI character, contemporaries often depict him as uh, indulgent and disinterested in the affairs of state. Um, well, however, opposite to me. Yeah, historians have since revised they're, they're this. Invested. Yeah. So Jonathan Sumption calls Philip a quote intensely serious man who quote lacked judgment and experience. He had not been brought up to be king. His background True. and interests were those of a True. great territorial nobleman. His attendances at court and in council had been few and separated by long periods in his lands in Western France. I feel um, so he would have been a good lord. Yeah, that's what Sumption is saying. Like, he would have been a, a really yeah, good provincial really lord, good. but yeah. God. Yeah, and unlike Edward, who was raised as king. Yeah, but king, instead he'd been raised... He was- by, just to be a lord. Well, as, just to be a lord, but also, you know, a bit under the thumb of his father, Valois. Yeah. And yeah, then he's suddenly like, you know, thrust into... Thrust into the spotlight to exactly. make all the decisions. It would have been a very hard transition. So Philip's... For anyone, really. Yeah. I feel. So Philip's predecessors of the main Capetian line had had the luxury of undisputed legitimacy. Yeah. Uh, built over many generations of yeah. unbroken you know, an unbroken line of kings. But Philip was yeah. the son of a count and a countess. Yeah. Um, although even though they'd been, they'd been huge powers in the kingdom, but it was still, you know, it's a, it's a, it's different. Um, yeah. He's always, he's been raised to look at someone else in charge kind of thing. Like exactly. Not to expect to ever be in charge. Exactly. So yeah, he's called Philip the fortunate, not because he'd worked to get the throne, or been preordained as king, but because the crown had sort of just Fortunate fallen into his lap. Him. Yeah, by yeah. sheer dumb luck. Um, like yeah. Someone threw it and across the room misogyny. and it hit him. <laughs> yeah. Or he drew it out the lucky dip. Dumb luck, misogyny, curse of the Templars, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Yeah, um, yeah, So Philip VI obtains the throne under precarious circumstances. So a lot of the yeah. early policy of his reign is actually out of his control. Um, yeah. He didn't want to rock the boat and upset the old guard of nobles and bureaucrats yeah. who had chosen him as their king. Smart, because he knows he can easily be kicked out, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So it was this old guard and not Philip who organized the execution of an unpopular advisor called Pierre Remy, um, who was an unpopular mm. advisor under Charles the Fourth. So they they use the change of king as like an excuse to like excuse to weed out the people they don't like. Yeah, and Sumption calls this a judicial murder, basically. Um, and we've seen this before happen when, like, a lower-class person yeah. gets a bit uppity and then they end up, you know, being the first to go. <laughs> so Philip also had to create new job roles um, at court mm. for those who had supported his rise to power. So as a result, yeah. the bureaucracy kind of swells and gets a bit bloated, and it's an extra uh, burden on the royal finances. Yeah. Which, as we as we know, 
have been struggling. <laughs> yep. Um, and the war's not going to help it. Absolutely not. Um, so uh, an English diplomat describes Philip's government as, quote, hedging him in, um, which mm. is a stark contrast to his uncle Philip the Fair's government, which uh, yeah. we sort of compared to like an octopus with tentacles, like doing yeah. the king's will. So we've seen a bit of a, a reversal where the bureaucracy reversal. has gone from something that the king uses to exercise his power to something that limits his power. Yeah. Because it's become so complicated and Byzantine, for lack of a better term, that it's kind of, you know, um, limiting him. So Philip was yeah. very distrustful, very suspicious, even paranoid yeah. uh, during his reign. He, he trusted only his close family um, and a very small inner circle. Um, yeah, and he held... considering he's had friend betray him like his privy brother. Yes. So the wider nobility and bureaucracy, he, he sort of keeps it at, at arm's length. And this it also, is, yeah. this disconnect that between does. the inner circle and the outer circles made the French administration less and less cohesive. Um, mm. uh, and this is contrasted to the court of Edward III, who was known yeah. for his openness and accessibility. Whereas mm. Philip is disappearing into back rooms with his his close mates, and they're not communicating enough with whisper, whisper. the rest of court. Yeah, exactly. However, among the people, Philip was generally a popular king. Um, oh, that's nice. Uh, you know, despite us looking back on him and thinking maybe it was rubbish for losing at Cressy, you know, he he was well regarded in his time. He was very well educated in political science yeah. and strategy. Um, Good. And with the exception of Cressy, he usually took a very cautious and flexible approach to situations. Yeah. The one time he decided to do what he usually does, like he usually doesn't do. Yeah, Cressy was like the one like exception. It wasn't the rule. And then and, it was, um, yeah. He was usually too cautious. But the one time he goes, I'll be reckless. Exactly. Backfires. And his father, Charles of Valois, had been known for being quite reckless and prideful. I but, know. Um, and Philip, he was it doesn't seem to have passed like... that to Philip, yeah. Yeah. Um, and as a result, Philip is better at making friends than enemies. So before the war, he even seemed to get along with Edward III, like on a personal level. Yeah. It was just more yeah. all of this outside stuff that yeah ruined um, the ruined it. friendship. The potential friendship that could have been, yeah. Yeah. Because they don't, you know, they don't know each other well, but, you know, they, you know, yeah. in another life, they, they could have been friends. Yeah. Alternative dimension. Exactly. Nonetheless, uh, Philip did indeed make enemies like Robert of Artois and Geoffrey of Arcor, mm-hmm. and they ended up majorly biting him in the butt. Um, yeah, they were sneaky little rats. That being said, the only major bit of territory that Philip lost to the English was Calais. He otherwise yeah. held on pretty well. Um, yeah, he did. And he even expanded French territory in the oh, south, meanwhile, while this nice. has been going on. So when Philip yeah. died, his son John was on the way to conquering English-held Guienne. So that's good. Yeah. We'll see if, Phil, yeah. if uh, John can keep that up next Succeeds. reign. Um, also, a certain southern lord, the Dauphin of Viennois, had sold his lands to the king before dying. Oh. And Philip bestowed these lands on his grandson, uh, so John's son, Charles, um, who's huh. going to be the king eventually. So Charles thus yeah. becomes the first Dauphin of France. <gasps> oh, yay! Yes. So this territory in the south, uh, Dauphiné, it's between Burgundy and what is now Switzerland. Um, 
and this expanded the royal domain all the way down to the Alps. Um, nice. And uh, further south, uh, Philip also purchased the rich trade port of Montpellier from the king of Mallorca. Oh. Um, so, he, you know, he's the I south is looking pretty good, despite the uh, yeah, north the chevauchets in the north. Yeah. Um, nice balance. Yeah. So obviously, you know, we've got two major defeats at Slois and Cressy, but we've got ultimately the English chevauchet tactic only making the French people hate Edward and see Philip as their savior. Better one. Yeah, and (laughs) meanwhile, Philip's Philip's not burning down our towns and killing our women. Yeah. And meanwhile, Philip's actually making, you know, strides into like getting, you know, more income for the crown, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Nonetheless... As we said, France's population is huge compared to English population, so yeah. it's pretty—it's a pretty poor um, yeah. job that they do um, in terms of actually when it comes to actually fighting the English. Um, yeah, uh, yeah and we've already gone through the military reforms of Edward III, which made him a lot stronger. Yeah, um, especially that long. Battle. But again, you know, Philip—he shows that he's—he's he's very well connected. He's got allies like John of Bohemia, um, who aren't even in his kingdom. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, coming in to help um but you know this also speaks to philip's lack of ability to actually tap into the resources he has at home yeah um so the french method of calling up troops at this time was an emergency process called the arrière bon uh where the king could call on every nobleman within the royal domain ages 18 to 60 to gather with their knights and men at arms and with uh, towns also providing militia and numerous volunteers joining up as well so this is typical like you know late yeah. feudalism how you call up yeah. armies yeah uh but philip had to use the arrière bon sparingly and strategically because it's considered an emergency measure yeah so he, he can't have a standing just... army that he keeps around all the yeah. time he has to yeah. you know call it up every time the english decide to chevauchet because otherwise he has to compensate his nobility financially and yeah. that will you know cost the, the crown will tumble into debt if that happens yeah we don't want that so yeah, despite France being theoretically way more wealthy and populous than England, actually being able to tap a lot into of and more use rules. that, yeah, there's a lot more rules preventing the king from the doing more that. Barriers. Exactly. Yeah. More barriers, yeah. Um, so much easier for England. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, you know, the French heavy cavalry, which have served them so well for so long, are finally starting to get trumped by the English longbows. So that's the... You can't do anything about the arrow. The main big change of, of Philip's reign. So that is on guard. What do we think we want to mm. give him? It's a, it's it's more of a mixed bag it's... than I initially thought of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think considering he didn't lose any, like, like, a lot of land, I think that's pretty good and that he extended the royal domain. I suppose that's more rule would it be or is it still counts military well i mean on guard it's not just military stuff it's also you know just how he gains power for himself so selfish wins yeah and in that regard becoming king of france is in itself a very good Incredibly selfish, selfish win. win yeah it is it does deserve a decent score for that and you know edward you know for all of his successes never really becomes king of france so you know mm-hmm. i don't know i'm thinking like a six yeah, I'd be comfortable with a six. It's it's definitely not a seven. Yeah. Because to have a seven, you'd need, you know, you'd need to... Win something. Yeah, and he doesn't quite, you know, he's he just holds on, basically. Yeah. 
And he holds on well, but, you know, yeah. he loses those two big battles and they're huge disasters. So mm. definitely can't give him more than six. Okay. You know, he gets above five because he's, he's, yeah. he's good. <laughs> yeah. That is a 12 for on guard. Yes. So let's get into Vulevu now. Vulevu. I've got some positives, some negatives, and some, you know, in the middle. Mixed. Things. Um, so positive. As I've said, yeah. Philip was a popular king in his time. Yeah, that is uh, good. He's described by chroniclers as, quote, wise, gracious, and courteous. Oh, um, nice. So despite his bouts of depression and paranoia, uh, which were which brought understandable. on the, the, by the stress of war and death uh, that surrounded him. king. Uh, being king in a, a troubling time. Um, yeah. He was a dedicated uh, head of his family. He had a loving yeah. relationship with his children, treated his wife mm. as a co-ruler, oh, no. kept them very close because he was afraid of everyone else. Um, <laughs> and he gave Joan the reins of government to her like whenever yes. he went off to war, which is a lot more than our previous kings have done. Um, yeah. like he, he's like, she is literally in charge while I'm not in yeah. Paris, basically. Yeah. Um, like you follow her will exactly god damn it rather than giving it to you know like an uncle or a minister or something and this made it even harder on him when you know she, she died, died other family members died yeah. um his yeah. brother also remember died at Cressy. yeah so philip was generally held to be you know friendly and personable yeah despite the distrust of most of his nobles I feel i'd be like that though but the people that he did trust weren't necessarily the best so now yeah. we get into the negatives of Vulevu. So yeah. he didn't have the best judge of character. Fossar writes that, quote, he was always ready to accept advice from fools. Um, mm. Well, a fool so did often... tell him the news. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> the, 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 a literal fool is giving him yeah. his news. Um, but yeah, he, um, you know, he often surrounded himself by the most loyal or persuasive people Rather than the uh, ones who the bootlickers, yeah, the ones who could get like the you know, the difficult jobs done, um, yeah. Like if you remember, get their hands dirty. Philip the Fair had been very good at picking advisors who weren't necessarily yes. you know popular, but you know knew their yeah. stuff and knew their were really stuff, good yeah. at their job. Yeah, yeah. You know, didn't end up well for them, but you know, ended up well for Philip. Um, yeah, but yeah, this Philip, you know, he's not as good. Um, he's also, you know, he's bringing reforms and added roles to the French bureaucracy, though this is the mixed part. Oh, Historians have mixed yeah. opinions on this. So there's a report, for instance, in 1326 showing the royal chancery used a ton and a quarter of wax for sealing documents. Ooh. So that's Damn. a huge amount. Um, Damn, so many documents. So, you know, you can, you can see this on one end as like, oh, they're really organized. They're keeping records of everything, like that sort of thing. We can also see it as like, this is a very bloated and inefficient system. There's, yeah. there's this seems like too much uh, wax yeah. being used for too many, uh, too much paperwork, basically. Um, yep. Unnecessary paperwork. Exactly. We, I hate unnecessary paperwork. Um, mm. There's one thing I hate in this world. Um <laughs> Then there are the many other reasons you wouldn't want to live in this time uh, for Vulevu. So you've got the English chevauchets in the north, the civil wars in Flanders and Brittany, and of course the plague, yeah. So the cultural and religious reaction to the Black Death was pretty bleak. Um, So fear and infection completely broke down and destroyed communities throughout France. Priests feared going 
uh, to the houses of dying people uh, to give them the last rites, uh, which uh, was, yeah, but, you know, the last rites were considered a necessity for getting your sins forgiven so you could go into heaven. So the Pope Mm -hmm. had to issue a bull declaring that anyone who died of the plague got automatic absolution. Smart. Um, So a lot like he'd done for people who died on crusade. Yeah. Which is smart. It helped alleviate some of that stress. So we also saw increased religious fanaticism in response to the Mm. Great Famine earlier. Um, And now it's even worse. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. Yes. So a, a religious sect called the Flagellants starts to rise oh, up. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you love these people, Eliza. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the Flagellants uh, were proceeded in large processions from town to town, scourging themselves with like whips mm. or like sharp, yep. uh, blunt objects. Um, yeah. They only start appearing at the very end of Philip's reign. So there'll be more of a big thing yeah. in John II's reign. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the king's after him. But just know the flagellants are, are running around. They end up getting accused of, you know, heresy. And um, they're very much on the out, on, on the, the, like, f- the fringes, the fringes of Catholicism, uh, these people. Yeah. So that is voulez-vous. Not a pleasant time to be alive. Mm, uh, yeah, but then again, you can say that of most of our king. Uh, mm. <laughs> Black plague is particularly nasty. Hmm. Not want to die of that. I mean, there's not a lot of evidence of Philip the Sixth being very involved in, you know, alleviating yeah. the Black Death at all. Like, there's not much he can do, really. There's not much. I know, can do. like they don't know how to deal with that. She's never happened before on this scale. But it's weirdly, it's 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 weird how little the chronicles actually cover the Black Death, considering how major it was, killing like a third of France's population. I suppose, at least right now, it hasn't hit peak. No, it has. Yeah. Oh, it hits peak a, in. In 13, sort of th- 1347, 1348 is when it first hits, and, and oh. Philip dies three years later. Oh, so he's still the worst. And it's still going into like 52, I think, in other parts of Europe. And it resurges a few times, but this is, yeah. you know, this is the worst one, the first one. Okay. So yeah, it is It is at the height of its, its how bad it is oh, yeah, okay. in his reign. It does happen at the end, but, you know, he lives all the way through it. His wife dies of it. And his wife does, yeah. But, yeah, we've also got, you know, positive character, bad bad judge of character for other people. Um, yeah. Reforms uh, doing as much harm as good. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of just neutral in a way. Balancing yeah, it might be another five or six, might it? Yeah, I was thinking of five. I think I'm kind of thinking below five for this one. I'm, I'm not impressed. I'm thinking of yeah, four. Yeah, okay, I want to go down to 4.5. You know what? I'll be nice. I'll do 4.5 as well. I think it's just below a five. Yeah. So that's a, just that's a nine. Ten. Of Ulibu. Oh, All right, yo. Uh, so going on to Ooh La La. <gasps> Ooh La La. So there's honestly, there's not too much here. The Philip seems like a pretty upstanding guy until he randomly steals his son's wife. His, yeah, that's <laughs> Which was very scandalous at the time, definitely. Mm, scandalous um, and, now. And people, you know, we see, we'd see him as a creep now for doing that. They saw him as a creep then for doing that. Yeah, that says like, something. What is this creepy old man doing, preying on this girl who's come to court? 
and it's purely it's not he he, he no you know he kind of it's lost um it's lost and it sort of ruins her life <laughs> yeah Blanche of Navarre um becomes a widow um before she age. when she's like seventeen and she's not allowed to remarry so you know um and the child she uh, she, she does have ends up dying so um no. she's just kind of alone. Yeah, and she doesn't get to be queen for mm. long. That sucks. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a little point or two there. I say two points. Yeah. Would being a king be the scandal as well? Like, because he never expected it. I mean, is it his scandal though? It's kind I of just something that happens to him. Fell. Yeah. True. True. Um. Oh, I I do have another note. He had one recorded yeah. mistress in his early oh. to mid twenties. Um, so long okay. before he became king. So this was yeah. Beatrice de la Berruere, um, okay. who gave him a son called uh, Thomas de la Marche, who was known as Le Bâtard de France, the bastard of France. Oh. Um, oh. And he became a military commander. So meanwhile, Beatrice herself was sent to a convent after Thomas' birth yeah, uh, on Philip's orders, perhaps at the be- behest of his wife. <laughs> yeah. Is what I'm speculating. Probably wouldn't want to see the mistress. <laughs> yeah, around. And this was this was during their marriage that this happened. So, well, then he seemed pretty loyal after. Yeah, there's no record of a mistress after that. <laughs> so, but they could have been others. They just weren't, you know, noble mentioned. Because because Beatrice is noble, that's why she's mentioned. Yeah, yeah but it's just a mistress. Like, I think that's pretty yeah. Fun. It's nothing groundbreaking. Not... I mean, the yeah. the big scandal is is marrying Blanche. Um, mm, yeah, that's like two points. There's also, you know, there's a few sassy moments with him defying the King of England, um, but mm, that's expected. Know. That's expected as well. Yeah, I, I'd probably give him like one, two. I'm gonna go two for, for Blanche. Two for Blanche. All right, so that's a four for Ulala. Mm-hmm. So now moving on to the on throne. The on throne. Philip reigned. Uh, from the 1st of April 1328 mm-hmm. to the 22nd of August 1350, which is 22 years, 4 months, and 21 days. Um, and that gives him 4.81 points. Uh, so then the children. Um, mm-hmm. So by Joan the Lame, uh, he has firstly King John II of France, known as Duke of Normandy yeah. before Philip's death. And by the time he becomes king he already has seven children by his first wife bond of bohemia um who we will get to know a bit better in future episodes um so then the second child is marie who died at the age of seven unfortunately but already was somehow married to the son of the duke of brabant (laughs) so damn yeah they married them increasingly younger but um obviously you know they're not sent uh to live with their husband, or if, or if they are, they are, you know, supervised because they won't yeah. consummate the marriages until they're yeah. teenagers. But still, it's a bit weird. Thankfully, um, thankfully, yeah. So the third to sixth uh, children are all sons, mostly named Louis, who are Ooh. either stillborn or died shortly after Aww. after birth. Then the seventh son is is Philip Junior, who became the yeah. first Duke of Orleans, oh. um, which will become a title used for the the younger sons. Um, yeah. And he ended up marrying Blanche, the posthumous daughter of our last king, Charles the Fourth, oh, so the one yeah, who yeah, was yeah. born on April Fool's Day. <laughs> he marries yeah. her. Um, the couple were childless, however, 
So the Duchy um, of Orleans reverts back, back to the crown after Philip Jr.'s death when he's 39. Um, so he does outlive his father. So that's two yeah, children so two. far have outlived their father. Um, then we get a daughter called, mm-hmm. guess what she's called? Joan. Joan, who dies uh, the same day as her birth, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And then the ninth and final child, we have a son who was born in 1343 and died in 1343. Aww. So that is um, only two out of nine children surviving from the first Damn, marriage. Then after Joan the Lame's death, Philip, of course, marries Blanche of Navarre, who ends up being pregnant when he dies. So she gave birth to a daughter named... Joan. Joan, who confusingly is also sometimes called Blanche. Um, But so Joan Blanche, uh, she, at the age of 20, was sent south to marry the King of Aragon. So this is long after after, uh, Philip dies. Um, but she fell ill and died on the journey. Oh. So, yeah. But she survived her father, at least. Or at least, well, she wasn't born when her father died. But we're counting posthumous children, yes. um, as we've done in the past. So that's uh, so three children. Three kids. Only three. Um, mm-hmm, three. Out of ten born. Um, oh. So that is 5.07 points, uh, which... Combined with the rain score, leads to a middling Beyond Throne score of 9.2. Okay. So he's middling for everything, pretty much. Yeah, he really is. Yeah. So tallying up to the final score is an unsurprisingly middling score of 45.2. Yeah. So he's done better than all the children of Philip IV. The last few slew of kings we've had, but he's a few points behind Joan the Second of Navarre, who he usurped. Mm. <laughs> so let that be a fitting mm-hmm. revenge for her. <laughs> yes, in the economy plus section. So that brings us to the final question: Is he fascinating enough, entertaining enough, majestic and fabulous, and irresistible enough to be released from our dungeon to go through to the Battle Royale Championship and to be spared the guillotine? I don't think I can give it to him. No. 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 He'd die in battle instantly, too. Well, he didn't die in battle. He got wounded at Cressy. He didn't. He didn't I die. know, but I just feel like going against one on one, such as he turned Oh, if he's up against before. Charlemagne, he's dead. Um. <laughs> Instant kill. Insta kill. Uh, so, sorry. Sorry, Philip. Sorry, mate. Um, you are now guillotined. You were you were good. You just weren't good enough. Yeah. For the times you lived Sorry. in. So okay. it's two a.m. here, and it's how yeah. how what time is it there? Oh, ten. Ten. Wow. 10 that's gonna be an that's gonna be an an au revoir from me. And a goodbye from me. And a goodbye. <laughs> and a stay of horses. Um, yeah, stay of horses. Use, don't use go long to bows instead. Get yeah, off your horse, use a longbow. Longbows are better. Not cannons, though. Cannons are still crap. Treat your wife nice. Treat your wife nicely. Just all that. And get a dog. Yeah, get a dog. Bye.